With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. What's up? There you go. Monday morning. Monday morning here in San Diego, uh, getting everything squared away here. Had a bit of a rough night of sleep, so logically it would make sense I'd have trigger fingers uh, on bringing up the video and then bringing myself up live here on the channel. Thanks to everybody who's already joining me. 50 of you joining me live right off the bat. Uh, lively chat already. I see Travis Earl trying to throw out all his thoughts at once. Uh, Abdul Rahman Adini, he's in here. Eric Kirby's in here. Seattle KO. KO, good to see you. Jeremy Miller. And Dusto, man, good to see you all right off the bat. Thanks so much for joining me. We're going to get into it. It's the nation. You know what the nation is. You know what the nation means. You know what the nation brings to you. And that's straight truth about what's going on in the world of entertainment and my own personal point of view of what's going on in the world of entertainment and how we uh, deal with it and uh, put it together here. And there's a lot to talk about today. Certainly, we're going to get into the Drew Barrymore situation that popped off over the weekend. No surprise that this stuff was announced over the weekend. You know, uh, news cycles or news organizations will tell you this. Anybody who's ever worked in PR will tell you this or publicity. This is, and I've been around the block a few times, so I'm speaking from my own experience and I'm speaking from a truthful place. If you want to drop uncomfortable news, you drop it over the weekend or you drop it at 5 p.m. on a Friday. That's the best way to get the least amount of traction and anger and frustration and reaction when you've got a negative story to put out or a negative comment to make or a negative statement to put out uh, or you're doing some nefarious shit or you're doing some stuff that you know you're going to get a lot of shit about, this is the time when you put it out so that you get the least amount of blowback. But clearly there's been a lot of blowback online on social media and from people at the WGA uh, and SAG-AFTRA for the decisions that she's making. And I'll talk about that. I'll have some updates on that as well. Also get into the conversation that people have been having uh, about the Ashton Kutcher, Mila Kunis, and others. I want to make sure it's not just them. There are 50 people who sent letters to the judge here in the Danny Masterson case to try to ask for leniency, or they tried to, or they asked for leniency for Danny Masterson to try to uh, lower his sentence, and he was sentenced to 30 years. And of course, that's on appeal uh, for the rape of those women uh, that he um, uh, 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 was found guilty of. So we're going to jump. We're going to talk about that as well. We're going to get into uh, the Jimmy Fallon article in the Rolling Stone that dropped a few days ago as well that I thought was pretty comprehensive and interesting and the reaction from people to it and the reaction from Jimmy Fallon to it as well. 
Uh, you know, he's about to do that podcast with Ori. I guess that podcast is happening with all those other fellow late night talk show people. Um, and they're doing all of that uh, for charity. Uh, but I wonder if they're going to address this stuff. Anyway, we're going to talk about all of that as well. We'll get into that Martin Short article that was in, or column uh, that was in Slate from the writer Dan Coyce, uh, tearing apart Mar uh, Martin Short. But I got to be honest with you, I'm going to get into it, but just let you a little preview of my thoughts on it. It wasn't as bad as people are making it out to seem. So I'm going to have some thoughts on that as well as we go along. Uh, and also... Uh, the Nun 2 really doing a great work over in the box office, knocking it out of the park. There, I think over $30 million uh, and uh, replacing uh, Equalizer 3 at the number one spot. You know, really doing the Nun part, two, the Nun 2 rather, doing really well there. Uh, and the accolades and the love that people have given that uh, film for uh, accomplishing uh, its feat that it accomplished over the weekend. You know, horror is there. If you can write a good horror script and you can get a decent director or a good director, you never know if you can make a film for a, a, a slow, a low amount of money and they, how much profit it might bring you if you do it that way. So, you know, for those of you working on horror scripts, get on it, get on it, write something really cool, new and inventive and fun. And I guarantee you, you'll find it'll find its way. If you've got enough connections, it'll find its way into the right hands and hopefully into the right director's hands uh, to make sure that they deliver a fantastic film. So we'll get into all of that as well. Uh, and we'll hear from you all with Streamlabs and Super Chats. Don't forget Streamlabs and Super Chats are open, are available. Please send them in, support the show. If you want to guarantee that your question or your thought or your comment is going to be read while I do the show, send in your Streamlabs and Super Chats. It's pinned uh, in, the, uh, in the description of the video. It's in the description of the video. It's also pinned uh, in the chat there for you all who have any questions about it. And I'll be checking it periodically as we go along through the show today. Uh, but Super Chats are another way that you can send in, except they take 50%. So factor that in when you're sending in your super chat that YouTube takes 50% of that profits uh, for themselves because they are YouTube and they are providing me a platform and I just have to deal with it. That's how it goes, ladies and gentlemen. But uh, the number one thing is also to subscribe to the channel. We just crossed 30,000 subscribers. We're at 30,100 subscribers, which is really great. Trying to get to 50,000 subscribers by the end of the year. It'll take a miracle to hit 20,000 more subscribers, but I believe in miracles. We're about to enter the Christmas season. That is the season of miracles, and I would love it if you haven't subscribed to the channel to subscribe down below and hit that bell button. I got to tell you, the Outlaw Nation has never been better, in my opinion, in terms of the quality of the shows that we're delivering. I think Geek Buddies is in a great level. The Hot Mike is in a fantastic level. The Jedi Way with Kevin Smets the three, and Laura Kelly, the three of us coming together here. I think we have really found our groove with a lot of the shows here on the channel. Been doing some good reaction videos as well, the uh, reviews, uh, and occasional live shows like this. I think the channel is at an all-time high, uh, and I and nothing against anything that's been on the channel before. We've got some great shows on the channel before with the John and Wendy Show, Mornings with the Outlaw, and what have you, uh, Impolite Truths, and certainly the uh, Sports Channel. We had Game Time, we had Strong Style, all kind of spun, spun off into their own thing. But I think the channel itself now has never been in better position, has never delivered better quality than it has now. And, you know, I have to be patient with myself. I'm only three years into the game. Some people have been doing this shit for 20 years, doing solo channels for a very long time or channels with a friend for a very long time. I'm still new to the game doing it on my own, and I like to think that we're doing okay for where we're at. But I want to get us to 50,000 and then eventually to 100,000 so that we can get great guests who will come on and have some fun conversations with us 
and that you all will enjoy as well. So you can do your part. If you can't send in Streamlabs Super Chat, that's totally fine. But if you can subscribe to the channel, leave a comment, leave a like on all the content we do here, I would appreciate it. You know, we even expanded the Geek Buddies to include a new segment called Geek Bites, which is a new offshoot show uh, that we're doing here where we explain some co uh, some concepts, some uh, uh, situation, maybe some film, some trailer, something. We do it for about 15 to 20 minutes here, the, the three of us on the Geek Buddies, and we just toss it out there for you all to consume and enjoy. And don't forget podcasts, right? The Outlaw Nation Podcast Network is its own network. This episode will be up there later on today. Uh, and all the, all the Jedi Way episodes are on the Outlaw Nation Podcast Network. I'm very, very close to deciding to do a daily show that will be on the Outlaw Nation Podcast Network that will be talking about whatever's on my mind. Could be anything from entertainment to sports to politics to life to love to whatever. And I'm just talking about it and also have a mental health component to it every day. So that's what I'm looking at possibly doing uh, to drive up subscribership to the Outlaw Nation Podcast Network. So just throwing all that out there for you all to consume. Uh, and uh, I'm building as I go along, you know, building as I go along. Ideas come along. I'm trying really hard not to be hard on myself because I want to be farther than where I'm at. That's just how I'm built. I want to run. As soon as I can walk, I want to run. And I've always been built that way. So I have to be patient with my own mental health. I have to be patient with the process. You know, I'm all I'm doing it all myself, except for obviously the co-hosts on the shows. I build all the thumbnails, descriptions, edit the videos. That I do it all. So it can be a bit much uh, uh, at times. So just letting you all know that that is my approach. That's my, uh, my mentality with all of that. So um, let's see. Did I pin it in the chat? Is it pinned in the chat? Let me check real quick to make sure you guys know. Yeah, it is pinned in the chat for Streamlabs. Super chats are up. We got a hundred and um, how many? One hundred and sixty-five. You joining me live? Thank you so much. I appreciate it madly. Um, but I do want to start with one thing, and that is, you know, today is nine eleven, and I do want to, before we get into all the drama about you know uh, people in Hollywood and their bubbles and the celebrity life uh, that people leave sometimes, it makes them a little bit out of touch with what's going on in the real world and the actual world. Um, I do want to take a moment to uh, talk about 9-11, offer up a tribute. Obviously, it's been 22 years since 9-11. Some of you may be watching me, haven't, weren't even born or were babies uh, when uh, the years after 9-11 happened. But it was a very, very, obviously a very, very big deal in the history of our country. Um, we were attacked. Uh, many innocent people died. Uh, and it was horrible. Uh, and the experience there, um, a lot of people still have trigger warnings. Uh, I know my friend uh, Maggie Lovett over there um, from Collider and also uh, from the Hollywood Critics Association. I saw her tweet, very moving tweet, saying she wanted to kind of block 9-11 because it's a very deep thing for her. She had people involved in it or people who were connected to it. And I think that's absolutely valid, you know, and to have that and it can trigger some things. And you think, well, it's been 22 years, but people do carry it around. People do still remember it. People do viscerally go through it i know that there isn't a 9-11 that passes where i don't at least watch one documentary on the tv over there to uh to kind of make sure i'm honoring the people who were the first responder responders the people who uh showed up to help after the attacks in new york and in at the pentagon in dc um and all of that and of course united 93 there in pennsylvania would happen there so there was so much about that day that i think still echoes uh, and, you know, people always say, like, oh, never forget, never forget. I always remember, but legitimately always remember. You don't have to make a big show of it, but just keep a positive thought in your heart 
in the day for the people who experienced this, who are traumatized by it, who are still reliving it, who lost people they love. You know, um, uh, uh, Pete Davidson, obviously, knowing him, and that's a been a big deal uh, in his content. The King of Staten, I was watching The King of Staten Island this morning, about an hour ago while I was preparing the show, and I know that that deals with the 9-11 stuff as well. I think Bupkis has an element of that in, in the show as well. I haven't watched it yet, but I've heard that it has an element of it as well. Zelina Vega, the professional wrestler, female professional wrestler, she's lost her father on 9-11. So there's a lot of people. And Christian Harlow was touched by 9-11 as well. Uh, from my experience, you know, I was in L.A. when it happened. I got my best friend from Virginia was visiting, uh, who years later would become the city manager of Charlottesville and was the city manager during that racist Unite the Right rally in which that uh, young woman was killed by that racist asshole in a car in Charlottesville. He was the city manager and dealt with all the political and red tape bullshit that happened afterwards. But at the time, he was still working his way through uh, that scene there in Charlottesville. He had been a sports anchor there as well. He's my best friend from high school. We're still best friends today. was best man at his wedding. He was visiting me in L.A. for the first time. I'd moved to L.A. the year before, uh, and he, I just remember him knocking on my door uh, and waking me up, and I'm just like, what's going on? And he's telling me things, and I can't process it because I'm still so kind of groggy from the wake up. Uh, I walk out there. I start to see the first images. I start to hear about the Pentagon, and I immediately call my family because my father worked in D.C. at the time. He was still alive at the time, and my sister was a firefighter EMT. So for me, I was immediately like, oh, my God, what's going on? I got through to my mom initially. Uh, and my mom told me that we hadn't, she hadn't heard from my dad. Uh, and of course, this was before we knew what was going on. They were locking everything down. Uh, but that my sister had been one of the, it was one of the first responders. She was on her way to the Pentagon to help people at the Pentagon. So I know that 9-11 is an even more um, emotional day for my sister who was there and saw God knows uh, so many things, which she is, you know, not easily, she doesn't easily bring it up or, and doesn't easily talk about it. Uh, but she was there uh, to be one of the first responders there at the Pentagon. And then eventually my father got in touch with us a few hours later, which was one of the most insane hours for me and told us what was going on. And he was safe in D.C. and he was heading back because at the time, people, some people, some people don't remember or don't know or maybe forgot. But like everyone was afraid at the time that this was a full on attack and that nothing was safe. Uh, I remember my roommate at the time. We're not friends. We're not uh, we don't know. We don't hang out anymore. But at the time we were friends. We were roommates. He went to the Writers Guild Association to work. He was a temp. Uh, and um, they sent him home like two hours later, but he didn't know what else to do. And so we just sat in the living room for two days, my best friend and I and uh, my roommate, and just watched um, watched the coverage. And it was horrific. It was so painful to watch. And I remember for me, I was holding it together because I just because I'm kind of in a state of shock. As a former military guy, as a guy who'd been in military intelligence, an attack on our shores, that's a big deal. And I was still kind of processing it. And it wasn't until I saw people um, uh, jumping out of windows at the World Trade Center, uh, and not to bring that up in any way to traumatize anybody, but that was certainly the moment that I, I finally broke and I just sobbed, you know, just saw, just heave sobbing out of the pain and anguish and sadness I felt. Uh, that day and those two days, um, uh, two or three days, really, uh, watching all the coverage and seeing all everything, what everybody experienced. And I just remember for me, that's what broke me because in my mind, and this may have been a preview of some of the mental health stuff that I would come to know 
in the, the later years of the 2000s and 2010s. Um, I just was so consumed by the fact in that moment that these people uh, who got up that day to go to work had no idea they were going to be making this decision about their lives. You know, in the plane, that was just horrific to hear about the people in the hijacking and then they're just slammed into the uh, towers. And I'm sure that's just an explosion and possibly instant death. But these people who hung on for so long, burning in the heat and everything like that, and then making that decision to, rather than trying to, rather than burning to death, they rather have some agency over their own lives and jump out the window and at least have some last modicum of control of their lives by making this decision. In a way, I almost saw it as defiance. Like, you're not going to decide how I die. I am going to decide how I die. You as a terrorist are not going to decide how I die. I will, in this final act, I will choose how my life ends, you know? And, and some people were trying to, because I'm, I'm sure the shock and the madness of it all, some people were trying to scale down all those stories and eventually your body just gives out the wind, all of it. And I just remember that that was the moment that everything that I had witnessed came crashing on top of me and I just sobbed just sobbed um, because of the pain i felt for all those people having to go through that you know so just want to say today 22 years later it is a very important day an important uh, moment in our country's history and i hope um, for those of you who may not have relived it we're not in the country uh, or we're not old enough to remember it um, uh, or don't have a visceral connection to it just just to, out of a mo out of just honor and respect for the people who were there and witnessed it and all the incredibly brave uh, members of the NYPD and the fire department. I know nowadays, you know, I know we can have conversations about police brutality, police violence, but on that day, there were a lot of heroes who went into those towers to try to save so as many people as they could. Uh, and a lot of good people uh, lost their lives and a lot of heroes and warriors lost their lives trying to save as many people as they could on that day it didn't matter what your political affiliation was what how many years you've been a citizen it nothing mattered other your gender identity your your none of that mattered it was about human beings coming together to try to save other human beings from a horrible situation um you know and it was uh, sad that uh, some people took advantage of that kind of stuff you know you heard about later how people tried to apply for benefits who had never actually experienced it you know, you heard Trump on the phone, that stupid ass claiming that his tower, his building was now the tallest building in New York. And no, he never went down 9-11. Don't ever let anyone tell you he went down there to the rubble to visit. He never did. Um, and yeah, Giuliani was great that day. And, you know, you got to give props to Giuliani. You got to give props. Got to props to George Bush, who said all the right things, who came out through that first pitch at Yankee Stadium. There was just moments like that that kind of were important uh, about people who now, you know, maybe we have different interpretations of. But that day, well, you know, we kind of came together as a country really powerfully and really strongly. And I, you know, we're so fractured and maybe still dealing with the ramifications of that day as we see the splintered country we've become, the uh, the, the anger, anger and the violence and the hate and the destruction and the fear that drives all of that, you know. But on that day, very proud that we were there. So you know, it's incredible that we were there, for God's sakes. And I remember going to visit New York shortly afterwards and standing in line 
to see the ruins and I have pictures of it and you know the buildings were all covered up with a uh, black kind of garbage bag type material and just seeing the just the holes in the ground it was really heartbreaking you know I've never been back um, and I used to go to New York all the time but I never been back and uh, if I ever do go back um, I will absolutely visit the memorial and everything like that because it's important to touch base with that so but anyway just wanted to take a few minutes and um just send out a positive energy to anyone who's dealing with 9-11 today, to all the people who, and to honor all the people who sacrificed their lives that day or who were sacrificed that day uh, by those terrorists and um, give love to them and their family and positive energy out into the world for that um, through you know, any little thing that I can do here in this uh, show of ours here at the nation uh, on the Outlaw Nation. So, um Thank you. I, I think we've gotten a couple of super chats to come. There. Chris Miller saying, "Quick thoughts on CM Punk firing any WWE chances?" Let me let me talk about that in a second. Chris Wiley OFC says, "Just want to say thanks for all you do. You have changed my life with your content. Thanks to you, I am at Berkeley College of Music and going to graduate summer of next year. I will forever be grateful." Oh, thanks, Wiley. Wiley is one of the first people who kind of believed in the Outlaw Nation and helped us out and uh, did some really nice graphics for my Twitch channel. Um, at the time, you know, so that's kind of changed now, but like at the time did some really fantastic graphics trying to get me into it, but also helped out on the, uh, on the Outlaw Nation channel, the Outlaw Nation show as well. Um, and I'm really proud of Wiley having gone forward with his, uh, career and his desires to have more going on in his world, you know, so good on you, Wiley, as uh, Travis Earl says there, um, uh, big time, big time. So real quick, let me answer the CM Punk question. Uh, but yeah, let's wrap up, just say 9-11, res uh, respect and love support um and nothing but um positive thoughts and energy towards anyone who was involved in 9-11 and anyone who's dealing still today today with the drama of 9-11 there are plenty of charities and plenty of organizations you can be a part of and god bless john stewart who constantly fights uh to make sure there is funding from both from all both member both houses of congress for the people who are still dealing with the cancer and the um, horrible effects of that day uh, and the emotions of that day as well. You know, so God love them for doing the Lord's work in that way, for sure. Um, all right, there we go. All right, so CM Punk, here's what I'll say real quick. Uh, it's a, I, I'm one of those people that is all, I feel, I feel like it's a shitty situation all around, is basically what I can say. I think CM Punk went there and kind of revitalized his career. Remember, he had gotten his ass kicked in those two MMA matches. He had thought he could make a second career doing MMA, uh, and it didn't work out. So he was welcomed back in Chicago. I think it had been seven or eight years since he wrestled. Um, and here's the deal. And see, you know, this is the deal about any entertainment business. If you come back and you are a truth teller, you are someone who will absolutely give your opinion on a situation, you're not always welcome back. And it makes it even worse when you're the one who shows up and all of a sudden the ratings get higher, you're making more money because then the people who don't like you are even more frustrated that you have even more cachet and more power uh, in a situation. Uh, and I'm not necessarily not speaking from experience. Uh, some people think that they are on your level in a certain situation when they're not. And they get mad that you're getting a lot of the attention, you're getting a lot of the views. Then when they get to stand on their own, their content or their views count isn't as strong as yours. 
Um, and so you understand, and people get mad about that. People get jealous, people get frustrated, people get mad at the public. Um, that being said, though, I think CM Punk blew it and of about being a bigger man. I don't know how you let someone like Jack Perry get under your skin unless there's something else going on for him and what Jack Perry represents. And it may have simply have been that Punk hated the fact that there was another young Punk trying to get up in his face. And the irony is that I bet Jack was acting like a young CM Punk might have acted back in the old days when he was trying to establish himself as a separate entity and show what he could do. Um, and instead of understanding that situation, being the bigger man, ignoring the insults or letting them slide off his back, a physical altercation ensued. Now, I don't believe Tony Khan when he says his life was in danger. I think that's all legalese to try to defend his actions, defend his decision. Um, but it's just at the end of the day, no matter what side you're on, it's just a fu tragic, fucking tragic. Because AEW, you know, has got more attention because of punk. And you can you float on all in all you want, and you can float on all out delivering phenomenal matches, but AEW's collisions rating has gone right to the fucking toilet, and it is not going to come back up. And I don't, I am no way I'm ever going to denigrate the in ring wrestling product of AEW. It's fantastic. The out of the ring stuff is where the drama and the issues come, with Tony playing favorites, with certain people in Tony's ears where wrestlers are also EVPs, which is the dumbest fucking decision, um, and all of that, because it's cross-purposes, and it's inmates running the asylum, and you've got people, in, and Tony's playing favorites. I mean, Vince played favorites, sure, but Vince also sacrificed his favorites in order to make money. Vince always understood business first, emotions, personal feelings second, both positive and negative. But I think with Tony, it's about, well, who's helping me out right now? I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to touch, you know, I don't want to have any problems. And that's not going to be the way you run a successful pro wrestling business. You cannot remove toxic masculinity from pro wrestling, ladies and gentlemen. You're not going to remove that element. And it's just part of it. It's ingrained in it. But you've got to find a way to navigate it and balance it out. And I think Vince has done a good job, not a great job, of balancing that out with some exceptions, of course. But with Tony, I think there's a desire to make this a touchy-feely thing. And that's, in the end, never going to work, in my opinion. And Punk is caught up in that. I just don't know where Punk goes next. I, I, I don't know where Punk goes next uh, at the end of the day. Um, Punk thinks he's bigger than wrestling, but clearly he's not. I don't think he's bigger than wrestling. I think Punk has a very healthy opinion of himself. And don't we always tell people to believe in themselves, to love themselves, to think that they are worthy isn't that all the content coming out nowadays is no more do you hear the sad songs about heartbreak it's all about well get the fuck on out of my way right i'm gonna get a new man or a new woman or a new person and whatever there's no more songs like oh my heart is broken again there's no songs like that anymore it's very much about self-empowerment nowadays across the board nobody makes mistakes anymore you can't call it failure. you got to call it a lesson. So it's these things that you see. And so it's a changing in dynamics. So we can't, with one side of our mouth, say, you know what? People should believe in themselves. People should love themselves. People should think they're the best. And the other side of the mouth go, you know what? He thought he was the best. He thought he was the bee's knees. 
He thought it was king shit. So which is it? You know, and so these are the things you have to navigate. Now, if you want a humble, confident person, then you're trying to tell people how to act. And that's not always the best rem uh, best path to walk down, is it? So because it's a slippery slope. You want that quiet, humble person who's not going to drag attention. But here's Deion Sanders with being the coach at the University of Colorado, elevating an entire school with what he's doing as a coach. And he is one of the biggest self-promoters on the planet. And he believes in himself. And he delivered a wonderful post-game message to young people and said, don't let these people tell you who the hell you are and what the hell you're worth. They didn't make you, so they can't break you. And I was blown away by what Dion said. I was, I'm not always the biggest fan of his self-promotion, but I loved that. It's a great message. Because as someone who is constantly caught up in my own personal thoughts about myself and self-worth and people's comments uh, about me, I'm always caught up in that cycle. And so to he see someone of high status like Dion saying things like that to new generations, I think it's really important because people are always going to hate You've got to find a way to navigate out of that hate. I'll tell you the honest truth right now. Uh, something I have had the hardest time getting over. Um, and it's a real truth. I'm not bullshitting. And I may get in trouble for this. But was my last um, showdown match. I have yet to come to terms with it. I've tried. I've fought hard. But that day, I let all the negative energy of people who were not wishing me any kind of positive energy in my match, even though it was my final match, like nobody came up, only two people came up to me and actually had a conversation about my situation. And I could sense that there were a lot of people who didn't like me anymore or didn't like me being around it anymore or thought it was old news in the situation. And that affected me before I went out there. And I just couldn't, I couldn't get it back. And I let and I, I I beat myself up over that day because I let other people's opinions, thoughts, and feelings about me override my own. And I will never forgive myself for that. Never. No matter what therapist I see or book I read, until I can find another situation where I can 100% make up for that moment, I'm never going to fully be over. And so I'm telling you who are younger than me, who are probably watching or people my age or maybe dealing with old stuff. Do not let other people's opinions of you dictate who the hell you are, man. Fight for who your place in the world. And I'm not saying Punk did that. Right? I'm just saying I use it as a as a as a springboard to speak about this. Find your own way to find your value. People are always going to hate you, and especially as you move up further. I'm sure there are people who look at my channel today and are like, "Who the fuck watches Roka? Why do people watch Roka? Why the fuck do they watch the Outlaw?" My shit's just as good as his. Why aren't they watching my shit? I'm sure there are plenty of people who can do that. And plenty of people who will. And I'm small potatoes compared to, to like uh, Harloff or Campia or Merle or any of those other people who have got way more subscribers than I do on, on their channels. But there are people who are always going to hate the person above them or be jealous of the person above them. Instead of learning the lessons like, and this is something Christian taught me. I'll give him a, Credit because a few years ago I got into a bit of trouble mouthing off about Danny and Hector, and I was upset that as a Latino I wasn't getting the same offers they were to host shows. And I, you know, I apologized uh, to, about that to them. And but Christian said to me, "Don't get mad you're not getting something. Find out why they're getting it, and do that, and figure out how to do your version of that." 
And I was like, that was a moment of wisdom from Christian. He doesn't always have moments of wisdom, but I love him. But it's moment, but that moment certainly uh, is something I've tried to adhere to. Like, what are they doing better than me that I can learn to do and do my own version of to help me get to where I'm going? And that's how you have to look at people who are more successful than you. What are they doing that I'm not doing that I can do my own version of so that I can achieve some level of what they're doing? It's not going to be overnight, but it, and, but it takes time. It takes hard work. You know, I mean, this channel, three years I've been at it, doing this channel. I've been very fortunate to have some wonderful co-hosts, some great guests, some fantastic content, and a wonderful audience like you all coming along with me. So you know, it just takes time. You got to put the effort in. Brian says, you're only supposed to believe in yourself if it doesn't make anyone else uncomfortable. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's exactly right. That's a great point. It's exactly the truth. Uh, it's the weird kind of mixture. Props for being so vulnerable but not getting over your last match. Always appreciate your candor. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. That's my life. That, that's my life. You know, no, it was, uh, see, I was like, what well, was it you? No, it was me. It was personal. And it had been, a, it had been, how can I say this? It had been relayed to me in a number of situations uh, because people were upset about the fact that I was still, you know, um, grabbing attention away from them, especially the, the newer players. Uh, they were letting it known, and it was told to me by a number of people that I trust. Um, and so it was all of that. But I let all that get to me, and I wasn't ready. I went out there, and I knew I was going to lose. And I had a loser mentality. I couldn't fight. I just I felt like I was just being led to the slaughter. And if I could do that all over again, I would be in a completely different frame of mind and a completely different approach. But that's the truth about life sometimes. For all the hand-holding and hair-stroking and hugging and making rubbing your back and making you feel better, Sometimes you only get one shot at, shot at a moment. You only get one shot at a situation. So you got to understand the importance of it. I didn't at the time. And you've got to get yourself mentally prepared for it. So just letting you all know that in your lives, in your worlds, when those mo moments pop up, don't get caught up in being negative about yourself. Don't get caught up in other people being negative about yourself. Focus on doing the best you can do for you. And even if you fail, and Adrian said this to Rocky and Rocky Three. Even if you fail, you fail giving it your best shot, and there's no shame in that. And I think at the end of the day, you can live with that more than if you allow other people to rattle you and unsettle you and, and make you uncomfortable. That's just the truth. Uh, yeah, mom's spaghetti. Hundred percent, a hundred percent, hundred percent, a hundred percent. I love that. Oh, is Stormy going through something? I wish I could stop letting other people's opinions of me matter so much. I'm working on it. Yeah. You've also got to forgive yourself, Stormy. You also got to create a space to like be understanding of yourself and forgiving of yourself and be like, you know what? This is what I'm going through. This is where I'm at right now. How do I climb out of that? And I think seeing a good therapist, I think reading a really good self-help book that deals with that kind of stuff can give you the tools to create and troubleshoot your way out. Don't tell me you can't afford it. If you can afford a $15 Taco Bell meal, which you're going to eat and shit out six hours later, you can afford a $15 book, self-help book, that you get on Amazon, because uh, it's going to be more expensive in Barnes & Noble and other places. You get on Amazon, and you can highlight passages, and those passages are things you can go back to and reference in your critical moments, in your down moments, in your sad moments, in your tough moments. You can do that. Or maybe one month you're not going to pay for HBO Max, so you get that book that's $15 and it'll help you. So we can all find it if we have a little bit of expendable income. 
We can always find ways to help ourselves. There's free apps for meditation. There's free videos on YouTube, even from psychiatrists and therapists that you can watch that you will help you get through and give you tools to process. Because let me tell you, the thing I learned about therapy that saved me is that once you understand how the synapses connect and how the thoughts lead you to an overall thought, you can learn how to short circuit the patterns that you've had in the past by creating new thoughts that lead you to a different, bigger overall thought about yourself or about the situation. And that's what therapy is, is finding new ways to create, or finding ways to create new thoughts in your mind so that when you start to slip down the hole, because it's not about eliminating the possibility of you slipping down the hole or feeling negative. A lot of us are born with that and that'll never go away. But it's about, okay, I'm feeling this. All right, in the past, I've thought this, 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 and it led me to this negative situation. What it is is, oh, I'm thinking this. Okay, now I know I'm thinking this. I need to think this. I need to think this and remind myself of this and remember this and remember that. And boom, all of a sudden, you're out of that place, right? And it's not easy. And I know for me, having an incredible partner like I have in the Lady Outlaw has completely almost destroyed my panic attacks. Like I don't have them hardly anymore. And the therapy that I do, the, the conversations that I have with myself in certain moments. And unfortunately, none of those tools were available to me that day because there was just so much that was overwhelming me that day uh, at the match that I couldn't find my way back to center. Um, and so it, it'll happen. And forgiving myself for it, I've, I've been working on it for years now, three years now since that match. Um, but I, or two years, I don't know how long it's been. But yeah, I, but I'm trying. And maybe one day I'll finally, you know, kind of let it, maybe one day in the past, because time heals all wounds. It does. Eventually, you just hit that wall and boom. I lost my father. It took me three years to process that loss. But once I processed it, it was in a much healthier place. And eventually I will process it. It'll just happen. One moment, it'll wake up and be like, you know what? I don't feel negative about this anymore. And, you know, you just got to work on it. Uh, do, 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 do. Oh, yeah, I already said that, right? All right, sorry about that. Um, what self-help books do you Paul? I, that's that's a whole separate video. And maybe it's something I should absolutely um, maybe do a separate video on for my channel. Just like here, here are some books that I would recommend for you. And I'll tell you what, Danny Fernandez was really great when I was going through some really tough times in 2016. She slid me over some books that were so helpful for me. I still have them in my uh, uh, closet over here and occasionally reference them when I need to read certain things. So maybe I'll create a video where I suggest some of these books and put them up on the channel. And again, I was, I'm was i not a licensed in any way, a licensed psychiatrist, therapist, or psychotherapist, or whatever it is. So I'll make that disclaimer in the video and make it very, very clear that I'm not telling you that these books are going to save you. I'm saying these are books that are possibilities for you to explore and see what you get out of them. So, yeah, that's not a bad idea. Uh, Muay says, uh, Roke, I mean, I agree with you on a lot of movie stuff. I respect the hell out of you, and I love this type of stuff when you talk about it. Thanks, you, Muay Thai. I feel like I'm going on and on about subjects I didn't put in the title of the video, so I need to get back to that. Aisha says, if you want your haters to go away, eat some Taco Bell and lock yourself in a room with them. <laughs> so true. So true. All right. We got 240 of you joining me now. Let's take a quick break. And I promise, I promise we're jumping into the topics here um, uh, right after, right after this. Step into the world of power, loyalty, 
and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chum. Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Alright, so let's get into it. The first topic here is the Drew Barrymore situation. I don't know if you guys uh, have seen this or been on top of it, but Drew Barrymore has gone back into production. In fact, today was her first day back after she initially stopped production on her talk show um, because of um, the writer strike in the SAG after strike. She had initially stopped production on her show in um, solidarity with the writers and then eventually the actors... Uh, uh, who there? Who actors, writers who were uh, part of SAG-AFTRA? Um, but over the weekend, and as I said earlier, this is how you do it. Apparently, over the weekend, a, a statement was issued, and she's already back at it. So she knew exactly what she was doing. She's executive producer of the show. Her producers, her talent scouts, everybody knew exactly what they were doing. She waited until the weekend. And then immediately went into production. This was absolutely a premeditated crossing of the picket lines to become a scab. Uh, and that's what she's doing. She is take if she writes, if her producers write anything, if she writes anything, she is taking work away from the writers that she supposedly cares about so much and, and made a big deal about when she stopped production uh, and is doing scab work for um, in place of the writers. And that's what scab means is that someone who is not that writer comes in and does that writer's work. And that is what a scab is. And that's what she's essentially being by doing the show. Um, And from what I read, well, let's read her statement first. This is what she said. We are in compliance with not discussing or promoting film and television that is struck of any kind. That's what she's claiming that it's not going to come up. We launched live in a global pandemic already. So, so look at that. Our, we launched live in a global pandemic. Our show was built for sensitive times and has only functioned through what the real world is going through in real time. So this is a very carefully constructed statement. And those two sentences will tell you how carefully instructed. That is her playing um, 
Mother Teresa in a way in this by saying we launched live in a global, we did the, we, it was incredible what we did and we brought people together for sensitive times and we've only functioned through the real world, going through real, so I did this for you all. I, you know, it was incredible what we did together. And she said, I wanna be there to provide what writers do so well, which is a way to bring us together or help us make sense of the human experience. So there's a bit of, for lack of a better term, there's a bit of grandiosity to that statement, and clearly I should have moved the graphic up a little bit higher, but there's a, a bit of grandiosity in that statement, right? Because what she's basically saying is, is that I'm going to help you all navigate this. I am going to sacrifice myself to help you all navigate this. That's the intent, that's the intention of the statement. Don't get it twisted. That's the intention of the statement to make her feel like she's this shepherd leading the sheep to the promised land. That's what is the intention of that statement. And that's working on a subconscious level. Look, PR people get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars and sometimes millions of dollars to carefully study and analyze the psychological makeup of fans and viewers and listeners to content. And that influences the templates that they create for any kind of situation or a situation like this where they probably spent weeks carefully constructing this statement, carefully timing when to release this statement and then timing when for her, when Drew Barrymore would go back to work doing the show. And as I said, she's already shooting in New York. The WGA East issued a statement and is already protesting outside and picketing her show outside. And here's one of the worst things that happened. This was reported by the, the Hollywood Reporter today. That apparently two audience members were kicked out of the taping because they wore WGA pins on their persons as they walked in. And the only reason they had pins on their persons was because they had to cross through a picket line to go into the show. And the people on the picket line, the writers there, gave them... Uh, pins. And I'm sure the other audience members turned down pins, but these two people, Dominic Turizic, I hope I'm saying that right, and Cassidy Carter, who are two New York City-based students, students who had planned to attend the show after signing up for free tickets about a week and a half ago, were not and not aware that the strike was going on. So that lets you know, like, the statement was only issued a few days ago, but they were already quietly opening the door to free tickets for people, probably doing it in areas where they know there aren't a lot of writers and wouldn't get back and so they got these tickets a week and a half ago. And as they walked into the building Monday, they were handed buttons from picketers that read Writers Guild on strike. The two say they were asked to take off the buttons at security. Uh, Cassidy Carter complied. Turashek was still wearing his button as they entered the studio space. He said a crew member spotted the button and asked them both to leave. And here's the statement from the Drew Barrymore show. It is our policy to welcome everyone to our show tapings due to heightened security concerns today we regret that two audience members were not permitted to attend or were not allowed access. Drew was completely unaware of the incident, and we are in the process of reaching out to the affected audience members to offer them new tickets. Now, let me tell you how much bullshit is in that statement, all right? The first part of the statement is our policy to welcome everyone. So initially, they start out with like, we love everybody. Everybody's God's children, and we want them all here, right? That's basically, we love you. Big old R, you know, embrace around the world. The second part of the statement is where it becomes bullshit. 
due to heightened security concerns today. What security concerns about two students who are wearing simple pins that say WGA on strike? It is absolute horseshit that there were any security concerns. We regret the two audience members. Were not, and, and look, you can pat down everybody who's coming into an audience. You can look through their bags and take all their stuff. What they were afraid of was that these two students might stand up and say something in the middle of a taping. God forbid they express their First Amendment right in a situation where they have a right to express it on American soil, right? They, that's what they said. The security situation, they were not permitted to attend or were not allowed access. Drew was completely unaware of the incident, and we're in the process of reaching out to the affected audience members to offer them new tickets. Two levels of bullshit in that line there. First, Drew Barrymore was absolutely aware of this situation. It is a lie that they are saying she was not unaware of the, she was unaware of the situation. Remember these statements, no one's under oath. They can say whatever the fuck they want. And the truth is, in my opinion, in my belief, because she's an executive producer of the show, there is no way that security took it upon themselves to kick, kick people out without her approval. No fucking way. They went to her, they told her it was happening. She probably said, okay, fine, yeah, they do it. And they, they took, her, took them two out. That's absolutely what most likely happened. Because the, the nonsense that people throw out, like what happened with the Kelly, I got a lot of shit from my tweet about this initially the other day and then the Kelly Clarkson thing, like, about the Fallon thing and attached it to Kelly. People say, oh, oh people, the people say that Kelly was, was not part of it and they love Kelly, the, the employees and all the bullshit. Kelly knows exactly what's good. These people know exactly what is happening on their shows. Please do not buy that these are just oh, floating in the ether type of people who show up and do a show and float in the ether right out. No. People who are successful in the talk show business are absolutely aware of every single thing that goes on in their shows meticulously because their name is attached to the show. It's not the Tonight Show. It's the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. It's not the mid-afternoon show. It's the Drew Barrymore show. It's not the mid-afternoon show on the other channel with that girl from Texas. It's the Kelly Clarkson show. And so when your name is attached to something, like the Outlaw Nation, right? I am very much aware of everything that's coming out from the channel on the channel. Anybody who says anything, anybody says anything, like if I have to, like with Jeff on the hot mic, I'm constantly having to say that's Jeff's opinion. It's not the channel's opinion or trying to turn down Jeff in a couple of situations where I think he might go too far. Those are those things that I'm doing to make sure that my name that's attached to the content here is not attached to something that I don't want it to be attached to. Right. So it's nonsense for people to believe that she was so unaware of the security took it upon themselves and she was just an innocent victim in the whole thing of the experience. Nonsense. I'm sure she didn't want to be called out. I'm sure that they're relying on people who are not that aware of the strike or not read up on it. That might even been on the questionnaire and they're like making sure that there's no disturbance in the audience. That's what they want. Now, normally I get that because you're doing a show. You don't want people interrupting like a stand-up comic doesn't want a heckler. Like you just want to be able to do your show. It's drama enough to try to get the show done. You don't need people chiming in and ruining the rhythm and whatever you're trying to do. So I can understand that right? In a normal situation. But this is not a normal situation. You know you're doing wrong 
In fact, she said, I own this decision in her tweet about it and all of that. Um, but that's the thing at the end of the day. If you know you're doing wrong, you've also got to create space for people to come and express their opinion. Like when Bill Maher found his nuts a few years ago and was calling out that the couple of people who came to protest him in the audience, he thought it was a badass trying to yell at them and step to them when he's a, a waifish guy who could easily be knocked out by one punch. Like he thought he was a badass. He has an entire security team with him so he can you know, show his chest, puff out his chest and swing his balls around. But the truth is that might've been a whole different situation if those two people were in a bar with him or in a regular store or whatever, and they confronted. So it's just that kind of thing. So there's no way security wasn't involved in this without her approval. So I'm just throwing it out there for you all to consider. Um, and then later, Turisek said, uh, after they were kicked out, um, they joined the protest. They put on WGA shirts. And Turisek said, if they think we're part of the strike, we might as well be. Carter added that she had signed up for tickets as a fan of Barrymore, but was now, quote, disheartened by the experience. She says, it really has changed my perspective on her and the show in general. I've been completely alarmed and disheartened by this whole process. Um, and so that's the situation. The show has returned without its writers, and the WGA said it will be picketing outside the show this week because it is still a struck show. Now, some people have said, well, what about The View? And I think that's a valid complaint about The View, the View has been picketed as well. The whole time The View has been going on, there have been pickets outside The View. Now, The View is a different situation because you've got, in my opinion, because you've got Whoopi Goldberg and Joy Behar, who are two stand-up comedians. They can write their monologues. Drew Barrymore is not a stand-up. Those producers aren't stand-ups. It's a different situation. Now, I, I'm probably splitting hairs and whatever, but I kind of like, you know, The View, whatever. This is the Drew Barrymore show. It's not The View... With Whoopi Goldberg, Joy Behar, Anna Navarro, and blah, blah, blah. It is the view, right? It's different, in my opinion. This situation is something else. And this is where I think the, the offense people are having. It's not about picking on poor Drew Barrymore. Give me a break. It's about uh, calling something out when it's happening. And it's very similar for those who maybe those of you who may not know this. The beginnings of the cracks on Ellen DeGeneres occurred all the way back in 2007 when we had our last writer strike in 2007. Ellen DeGeneres initially for one day, I think it was one day or a couple of days, supported the writers in the strike and said she was in solidarity with them. And I think it was two or three days later, she crossed the picket line and kept her show going. So it's very similar to the Drew Barrymore situation for a number of reasons. Let me read what Ellen did here. Uh, her statement. Um, there's a writer strike going on. This is back in 2007, by the way. There's a writer strike going on in here in Los Angeles. It's a huge story. I want to say I love my writers. I love them. In honor of them today, I'm not going to do a monologue. I support them and hope that they get everything they're asking for, and I hope it works out soon. In the meantime, now this is where... Her statement is very similar to Drew Barrymore's statement. In the meantime, people have traveled across the country. They've made plans. They're here. I want to do everything I can to make your trip enjoyable and give you a show. I'm going to sacrifice for you, right? Just like Drew Barrymore's statement was, we held each other tight during COVID, and I helped you through it, and I'm here to help you navigate these tough times as well in the world, right? This 
this grandiosity that both of them feel, which masks the reality of the situation, okay? And that is Ellen was on her last legs as a performer before the Ellen DeGeneres show took off. She would have ended up touring college campuses for the rest of her career because the show was done. And yes, she was getting unfairly and terribly, she was uh, getting vilified for coming out as a lesbian at the time. And her movies, nobody was going to see her movie, Mr. Wrong. No, nobody was going to see these movies. So she wasn't successful. The talk show host situ uh, situation popped up, and she found success there, and she didn't want to lose it. She was desperate to be relevant, desperate to be famous, desperate to make millions, and it happened. But back in 2007, nobody was sure that the show was going to blow up. She wanted it and needed it to blow up, and... So she crossed the picket line because she was desperately afraid that she was going back to being yet an, just another comic. And that's what happened. I think it's very similar to what's going on with Drew Barrymore. Nobody's paying money to go see Drew Barrymore lead films anymore. Those days are done. She's showing up. Sandler is helping her out on Netflix. Those days are done. Her being able to Drew Barrymore sitcom, those days are done. This is a show that made her relevant again, blew up, made her popular, and she doesn't want to let it go. You know, this is the truth of the matter. No matter how many nice people are in entertainment, they all want the stroke, they all want the ego stroke, and they all want to feel relevant. It's just how it is. They want to feel successful. They want to feel important. They want to feel relevant. And when you've got a show where people are watching you all the time and making and, and, and being paying attention to the interviews you do and doing all this stuff, and you feel like you're finding – a second renaissance or a renaissance of your career, you're afraid to lose it. And I think Drew sensed that she was losing the possibility of doing the show and ran back to do it. It's unfortunate. It's sad. It's absolutely a scab situation, no matter what she says. And the fact that all the guilds have called her out on this, and a number of high-profile writers have called her out on this, and people on the front lines have called her out on this and tagged her, on uh, uh, social media to ho hope that she makes the right decision here speaks volumes about how people feel about it. So that's what's going on here. Don't get it twisted. It is not, I'm going to help you through the pandemic and help you through the strikes. And, you know, people traveled all this way. They deserve my best. It is none of that Andy Hardy, for lack of a better term, bullshit. It is actually about ego, uh, performer's ego, a performer's insecurity, a performer's desire to be uh, relevant on the front lines and watched. And both of them are in, were in similar positions in their careers, and both of them made the exact same decisions. Um, and don't ever believe any statement that comes out that says anything to the contrary. All right? That is the actual truth of what is going on in the situation. Um, so, yeah. It's, uh, it's scab work there. And we'll see, because I think Yahtzee is protesting this. So who are they getting to run the lights? Who are they getting to move on? And you compare it to the talk show hosts. And we'll get to Jimmy Fallon's situation. But, like, all those late-night talk show hosts are coming together to do a podcast. By the way, I loved how someone called it out. Wow, the, the caucasity of white uh, talk show hosts at night and the, the maleness of all that. It's all white males. And they're all coming together to do that podcast. And... Um, give the, the charity, the, the money that's made up the podcast to uh, thing. And that's another way. That's them just wanting to do something creatively. 
And that has nothing to do with their talk show hosts or sorry, their talk shows, their late night shows. They're coming together. And that's how you get a, that's how you kind of work around this is that you do something with a group of people that's not written. You sit around and shoot the shit and your natural talent comes through and you make money off of it and send that money because you have enough money. And I'm sure Drew has enough money to send to the charities and whatever. So you're doing it for the right reasons, right? Nothing about the Drew Barrymore show. None of the statements have said they're going to send money to charities or send money to the guilds or, or give money to the actors fund. None of that has been part of their statement. So it's all about, and it's not about her staff. It's not about these people who might be unemployed if they don't work. It's not what it is. It's very much about her own ego and wanting to be relevant and stay relevant because the show gave her a second career. So, and that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. So, and I do want to say real quick, as we wrap up this conversation about that uh, Drew Barrymore situation, uh, and I put this on all um, my stuff and I want to make sure that that's uh, available to you all. For those of you who watch my channel, uh, I put it on here uh, as a SAG actor, we fully support our, my fellow SAG after actors and the WGA writers who are striking for better pay, residuals, compensation, working conditions, and limiting the threat of AI from the AMPTP and the movie studios. We celebrate the incredible moving and important work that these actors, writers, and directors have created all the content, not the studios, that we cover on this channel. You can support the strike by going by donating to the Entertainment Community Fund. And I put a link in the description of this video to that fund. You can also go to the SAG site, the WGA site, and the SAG, SAG strike site to find out how ways you can help with the strike as well. So just making it clear to anybody who's watching who may want to help or do something more to help people who are striking SAG after actors or the WGA writers, there are links in the description of this video that will guide you towards that. So just letting you know there. Um, all right, see if I got any Streamlabs or Super Chat that have come through. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Brian Brawler, I think you came. Uh, the Streamlabs, uh, please send them in if you can, ladies and gentlemen. Streamlabs address is pinned in the chats in the description of the video. Got 300 of you joining me live today. Thank you very much for joining me live, uh, 300 of you. Please make sure you hit a you hit a like on this video. Leave a comment down below if you're watching later. Joining me live right now. If you haven't subscribed to the channel, subscribe to the channel down below and hit that bell button so you get a notice when we're doing these surprise live shows sometimes here on the network. Brian Brawl says, I'm so not surprised that she did this. She's not a struggling actor. She's an established one. If she wanted to help people get through this, she would donate to the strike fund. Yes, exactly what I said, brother man. Exactly what I said. Um, they, they're not doing that, and that's the situation there. So, um, yeah, people – and the other part of this is that they're putting actors and writers and directors in an awkward position because they're going to invite them to come on the show. And a lot of them have done the show – You've seen the clips. You've seen Drew acting like a 10-year-old, and it's so cute and funny, and people love it. And it's great. That's her act. That's her shtick. More, more power to you. It works. Not going to denigrate that. But now writers, actors, and directors have to be like, do I want to go on a show that my guild is striking? Do I want to go on a show where my fellow members of my guild are protesting outside and call that person a scab? So even if she's even though she said like we're not going to talk about struck work bullshit because you know what they're going to do they're going to make little allusions to it little crafty allusions to it because they'll be like not that the not that the movie's out now not that you'd want to see the movies out in theaters now they'll do shit like that to work around the fact that they're not flat out saying or promoting that movie but using language that allows them a loophole to get away with it and that's what's happened 
And that's what's going to happen, unfortunately. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Just letting you all know. Alex Tornai says, I uh, highly recommend reading No Mud, No Lotus by uh, Tijnat Han. I hope that's right. And The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. Both have been a great resource for me. Yeah, I'm working through The Four Agreements, Alex, for sure. That's actually a really good book to recommend to anybody. That's a tough read. It's a tough to implement the four agreements, but it's uh, the lady outlaws, the one who cued me, uh, clued me into the four agreements. That's something that people should absolutely read and absolutely get involved in uh, for sure. So Paul, you were asking about self-help books. Uh, there you go. And here's an, one last thing I'm going to say to wrap up the Drew Barrymore situation. I've told you guys this on separate shows. I've told you guys this on other things and I've gotten in trouble for it sometimes, but I'm going to say it because it's what I believe is the truth. Never ever Trust a white progressive in Hollywood. Just never. They claim to always be about helping everybody and elevating everybody, and everybody should get a shot until one of their own is attacked, and all of a sudden they want to create a new situation that helps one of their own, and they want to escape culpability. You know, like we saw in that Kristen Bell picture, you're allowed to take pictures with your friends. Of course, no one's going to denigrate you. But you also can't be stupid enough to think that you're going to you're a person who's constantly talking about fairness and equality and people of color and women and all of this. And you take a picture and there's only one person of color in it and you post it. You didn't have to post it, but you posted it. So you can't cry about the blowback and the ridicule and the uh, calling out that people did of you. And other people went in deeper and showcased a pattern with Kristen after some people defended her for that photo. Some people went in with a pat and showed a pattern. So there's there's that kind of thing, you know. So to me, I never trust the white progressive in Hollywood because they, they they're always going to do what's best for them because Hollywood is a horribly tough business, a horribly tough place. And I'm not saying they don't get abuse, especially women in, in that town. They absolutely get abuse. You could argue sometimes that white women receive a lot of abuse because they are the most castable at times and they are the people that cast directors want to see the most. So therefore their level or the opportunity to be abused increases because of that situation. In no way I'm saying they are more abused uh, in terms of uh, percentage wise. It's more a matter of there's more opportunities for them to be abused because they are more in demand in Hollywood in certain situations. So that's, I'm not in any way saying that, but I'm just, but that's the situation as it stands is for me, I don't trust progressives or white progressives in Hollywood at all. Because it's always about their ego, their status. And I remember when someone called out when I used to work at Collider to, to even make it a little more like a provincial, um, someone, a writer of color, I can't remember her name. She called out a, a female, uh, uh, the writers at Collider that were all, all the editors were white at the time that I was there. All the editors were white. And, you know, uh, you know, meanwhile, they wrote all these articles talking about how the studios need to be diversified and all this kind of shit, but none of their editors were white. None of their full-time writers were white. And from what I understand, there were years where they had a really hard time getting black writers to show up and write for them during Black History Month because they wouldn't employ black writers as freelance writers at other times during the year. So a lot of black writers got hip to that 
and didn't want to do stuff for them. That was under a different regime, but that was certainly a part of it. Of course, that person's still kind of in charge of the of the website now. But anyway, they, they this person, this writer of color, she called out Collider for this, and one of the female writers, white writers, chimed in back to her and said, "Are you coming for my job? Are you is that what you you advocating to take my job?" Again, the white progressive. It's good if you all diversify, but because I tell you all to diversify, you can't come take what I have. And it's like, that's the fucking disconnect that you're making about it. If you're advocate, advocating for equality, you might get caught up in the greers of equality. And that's how it goes. You can't have equality, but don't affect me because I'm talking about it the most. It's not how it works. So just throwing it out there. Uh, Christopher Watkins saying it's time for my daily, daily anti-white viewpoint. Yeah, so ridiculous. Um, but yeah, that's that's the situation. Never mind that you know majority of my co-hosts are white on this channel, but whatever. Uh, so there's that kind of a situation there when you when you look at it, and you got to be aware. So for me, I don't trust them, uh, not because uh, they're white, but because people are just the progressives of the situation. Fine, if you want to remove the fine, don't trust. I don't trust any Hollywood progressives. How about that? That's fair. That's fair. I can say that. I don't trust any Hollywood progressives because I think they will always do what's best for them, but they'll always advocate for equality as long as they're not the ones sacrificed at the altar of equality. And I think that's what you usually see. So um, there you go. Uh, let's see here. All right. So um, actually, let's take a break now. With 320 of you joining me right now, I think that was all the Streamlabs and Super Chats. Yeah. All right. Cool. Just want to make sure we got all of them. Oh, Wayne Edwards sent one in. Thank you, Wayne. He says, what's up, Roca? I am so happy for your current success. Oh, thank you. It's very kind of you. And I'm knocking on wood that I hope it continues. I have followed you since Collider. Hearing that you will have a new one that offers your mental, emotional take on topics would be gold. Keep rocking. Yeah, I got to come up with a name for that um, because I do enjoy just kind of talking off the cuff about this stuff and uh, relying on my own knowledge about it all. And a more constructed uh, you know, format for a show like that, I think would be really instrumental in making sure I, I, I put it out there. But yeah, it's definitely... I thought I'm having, even if it's only an hour long show every day or every couple of days, uh, to build up the subscribers of, of the Outlaw Nation podcast network, I think would be a good thing to do that. And um, certainly there are people who are, uh, who I've uh, signed up for, who are like, offer tips on how to grow your podcast if you're starting from a smaller place like I uh, am right now. Um, all right. So there you go. That's the Drew Barrymore situation. Let's take a quick break and we'll jump into some more. Talk about, uh, well, we'll jump into the uh, Ashton Kutcher, Mila, and the Danny Masterson stuff uh, right after this. I can't believe I've been on for over an hour. That's insane. It's amazing how the time flies with you all. And as I said, over 300 of you joining me right now, which I appreciate. Thank you very much for taking the time. You can be anywhere else right now. And the fact you're hanging out with me means a lot. So. Let's move on to the, uh, let me get out of these uh, um, tabs for the Drew Barrymore stuff. Let's move on to the Ashton Kutcher, Mila Kunis stuff. Um, this became a big source of drama over the last few days. As some of you may know, some of you may not know, Danny Masterson was found guilty of rape um, and uh, uh, drugging and raping these uh, women who uh, were former Scientologists. I think there was three of them. Uh, and he was sentenced to 30 years. This was the second trial. The first trial, I think, was declared a mistrial. And this was the second trial that came through. 
and he was found guilty. It didn't take them long to find him guilty. And he was sentenced to the maximum that he could have been sentenced by the judge, which was 30 years. What came out, though, was that 50 people wrote letters of support for Danny Masterson to the judge asking for leniency on the sentence. Now, here's where it gets real um, twisted and weird. And I want to make it clear to any Scientologists that might be watching. I'm not necessarily going down that route. I'm just saying when you mix all this stuff in, it can be hard to separate all this stuff out. And the two people that people are that a lot of these sites are focusing on are Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis, who both worked obviously with uh, uh, Danny on the on that '70s show. They wrote letters to Judge Charlene Olamedo, uh, compassion asking for compassion. Here's what Kutch, uh, Kutcher wrote: As a role model, Danny has consistently been an excellent one. I attribute not falling into the typical Hollywood life of drugs directly to Danny. He also set an extraordinary standard around how you treat other people. There was an incident where we were at a pizza parlor and a belligerent man entered who was berating his girlfriend. We had never met or seen these people before, but Danny was the first person to jump to the defense of this girl. It was an incident he didn't have to get involved, but proactively chose to because the way this man was behaving was not right. He was always treated. He is. He has always treated people with decency, equality, and generosity. Uh, never mind that you standing up for a woman in one situation doesn't mean later you couldn't possibly take advantage of uh, uh, these women. Uh, Mila Kunis also echoed the se these sent sentiments in her letter, writing, quote, throughout our time together, Danny has proven to be an amazing friend, confident, and above all, an outstanding older brother figure to me. His caring nature and ability to offer guidance has been instrumental in my growth, both personally and professionally. David Trainer, who was an acclaimed director who worked with Masterson on both that 70s show and The Ranch, called the actor, quote, a man of upright values. Actors can be demanding. He is the opposite. He is a hardworking, disciplined, disciplined cast member who always is always attentive to his fellow actors. Notice, no mention of the women, no mention of him taking advantage of these women, raping these women, drugging, possibly drugging these women is what the what came out in the courts. No mention of any of that. It's just, this guy was cool to me. This guy was nice to me. This guy, okay, this guy helped me, right? And here are the other people who wrote. Billy Baldwin, Giovanna Ribisi, uh, Deborah Jo Rutt, Kurt Woodsmith, Ethan Suple, Eric Balfour, Marissa Ribisi, as I mentioned, Jonathan Tucker, or, or Jonathan Tucker, and then Danny's siblings, Jordan, Christopher, Will, and Alana, along with some cops and firefighters who said Masterson rallied around first responders by donating both money and personal time to help them in the aftermath of September 11th. Deborah Jo Rupp, who was the mom on that 70s show, said he was well-liked and very respected. Uh, one of the first things Danny did was to sit down with the teens and have a little meeting, and they all made a pact that no one would do drugs because of the nature of the show. Now, this has been very interesting because a lot of people have brought up the Topher Grace part of this whole situation. And Topher Grace used to get a lot of shit around the time that the 70s show became a huge deal because he wouldn't hang out with the people from the 70s show, from that 70s show. And a lot of people were, it was kind of intimated in the press and whatever that he was above them, he was being snooty and what have you. But look, he's not a Scientologist. I think, it seems like Kutcher and Mila Kunis might be. Danny certainly is. 
his family, his, his siblings are. Uh, I don't know how many of the people who wrote letters were scientists or not scientists. Obviously, the firefighters and cops, not necessarily. So it's a mixture of both, right? So you can't just say it's one thing or the other. It's a mixture of both. But I find it fascinating that Topher was getting all kinds of stuff, a crap for it at those years. But now Topher looks like um, a smart man. And Topher's wife uh, came out with a statement as well about this whole situation. Um. She shared a message. Uh, it was on Instagram when to, when the, when it broke on Friday that all these letters had been released. And by the way, they, 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 we're going to watch their apology video in just a second. But um, she came out with a statement on her Instagram stories. This is Ashley Hinshaw. Ashley underscore Hinshaw. She says, to every rape victim that is, that is re-traumatized by witnessing society debate and focus their attention on what is going to happen to the rapist, I see you. And that was essentially her way of supporting the women who were being pushed aside because of um, the responses to the 30-year prison sentence or these letters that were coming out from people to support, right? Now, no one else has um, – has, and, and, and a lot of people called out Kutcher for this because he's the founder of a – or co-founder of a nonprofit organization to combat sex trafficking called Thorn – with Demi Moore. Remember, he was formerly married to her before uh, uh, Mila Kunis. And remember, her, uh, Mila Kunis did a film on Netflix in 2022 called uh, The Luckiest Girl Alive, which was uh, dealing with a rape survivor. So a lot of people came after them um, for uh, these apologies, these, or these letters that were in essence. Uh, we have Wilma Valderrama, and we have not heard from him, and... Uh, Laura Prepon. We have not heard from Laura Prepon either. And I think Laura Prepon was a Scientologist and is not a Scientologist now. So it may be that she doesn't want to incur any of the wrath. We've seen, you know, if you watch those videos, we've seen what can happen to people who are former Scientologists who speak out against the religion, certainly. Um, um, Leah Remini has had seasons of showing you what happens to that. But Christina Ricci also issued a statement on this on her Insta stories. And I want to read this out to you all coming up on the graphic here. This is what she said. So sometimes people we have loved and admired do horrible things. They might not do these things to us and we only know who they were to us. But that doesn't mean they didn't do the horrible things. And to discredit the abuse, the abused is a crime. People we know as awesome guys, quote unquote, can be predators and abusers. It's tough to accept, but we have to. If we say we support victims, women, children, men, boys, then we must be able to take this stance. Unfortunately, I've known lots of awesome guys, quote unquote, who are lovely to me, who have been proven to be abusers privately. I've also had personal experience with this. Believe victims, it's not easy to come forward. It's not easy to get a conviction. So as we talk about this, by the way, Christina Ricci very powerfully delivering that message there and I thought it was a fantastically well-crafted message that spoke to a lot of people who still are in this place of like, well, if I didn't see it and he's an awesome person, it couldn't possibly have happened, right? And so this is a part of it, right, right? And so this is what you deal with in a situation like this. So apparently, Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher got so much um, blowback for this that they issued a public apology. It was a minute long video of it. 
Uh, and I'm going to bring it up. We're going to watch it. And I'm going to analyze this video for you because I think it's important for you guys uh, to be aware of how these uh, uh, apologies are delivered and uh, how the, the behavior and the words that they're saying. That's really important. So let me share the screen here real quick. So, and let me blow it up. So I'm going to walk you guys through. Wait, do I have any graphics? On? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. I've got uh, the old school graph. Hold on a second. I forgot. Last time I did a thing on here was with Scotty. Uh, so let me bring myself up a little bit. Okay. So we're going to watch this video. And, you know, the, this one's better. Yeah. Uh, all right. So let's take a look at this video here and we'll walk through it real quick. Make sure the sound is up here so everybody can hear it. We are aware of the pain that has been caused by the character letters that we wrote on behalf of Danny Masterson. We support victims. We have done this historically through our work and will continue to do so in the future. So right there, right off the bat, it's not, we apologize. It's not, we're sorry. It's not um, naming the people. Uh, none of that stuff. It's, uh, we're aware of it. Someone has made us aware of it, right? And Ashton is kind of looking off and, and not really, you know, lit. and Mila's looking at him, waiting for her cue, like an actress would, waiting for him to finish his line so she can deliver her line, right? And you see, and there's a bit of indignation in Mila Kunis. And if you've ever seen her, she's a very opinionated, strong-willed woman. It's one of the things I love about her as an actress. And as a person, before this situation, I like that she knows who she is. You know, with the Ukraine situation was happening, she was one of the first people out there talking about getting donations and trying to rally support for the Ukrainian situation and get money in support for that. So, you know, I appreciate that. And yes, look at the appearance of them, right? They both look like they've been traumatized by this. They've been crying about it. The whole look is to look like normal human beings in their backyard delivering this lump. Like she's wearing like a, a, a gray shirt, uh, she's got a minimum amount of makeup. He looks like, you know, he's just been uh, uh, dealing with it and pouring it over in his head. A couple months ago, Danny's family reached out to us and they asked us to write character letters to represent the person that we knew for 25 years so that the judge could take that into full consideration relative to the sentencing. Now, I think there's nothing wrong with that. The family's going to reach out. And he doesn't specify who the family is. Now, if you don't know anything about the Danny Masterson situation, his father, his biological father, is alienated from his children because he was deemed a suppressive person, which means they can no longer have any indication or any connection with him. And apparently it came out in letters that the his siblings wrote that they blamed their father for abandoning them when, in fact, they're the ones that took the impulse to push their father away because the church... Scientology told them to push their father away. So he, their father didn't abandon them. They were told not to have any more contact with their father. And that's the difference there. So to blame the dad for something he didn't do, uh, other than not want to be in Scientology anymore, I think is an interesting tightrope to walk. But here, with Ashton saying this, like, hey, they, they reached out and they asked us to write letters about the guy we knew for 25 years. Them reaching out, Makes sense. And I saw a lot of people kind of defend this and say, like, well, if it was my friend, I'd probably want to write something. And so, I get that. But you can always say no. The option was there to say no. 
to to think like look let me read more about this let me talk let me see if i can you know talk with the lawyers of these women and hear what they think or maybe i can you know you're ashton kutcher mila kunis you could possibly sit down with them or hear or read the transcripts from the trial so you can be more aware of this but they said yes and wrote the letters the letters were not written to question the legitimacy of the judicial system or the validity of the jury's ruling. That's such a red line. She's totally reading that line. So it's very much full of lawyer speak, um, very much saying like validity and you know, not, we're not undermining anything. We just wanted to speak in support of Dan. They were intended for the judge to read um, and not. So this is OK. So to undermine the testimony of the victims or reach homicide them in any way. We would never want to do that. Now, I think there is an element of truth that they don't want to re-traumatize victims. I just think they didn't think this through. And, or if they did, I mean, see, I've seen some more uh, ardent or hardcore people say that Scientology was leaning on them. I don't have any evidence of that, so I can't make that claim. I don't know what went on behind the scenes. I don't know who said what to who. That's a world I don't know. I, I, I don't I don't know if I've ever met a Scientologist. I don't know if I've ever had a conversation with a Scientologist. Uh, other than maybe Elizabeth Moss, who had a conversation on the set of Invisible Man, but it was never recorded. She came and sat down with us. Uh, and we had a nice five, ten minute conversation with a very sweet, very lovely person. But I don't know anybody who's a Scientologist, to my own knowledge. So I don't know what they would or couldn't do or whatever. So The other stuff with Danny Mashlin's dead, that's documented. So this is something I don't know about. Um... But what he's saying here, I think, is interesting in how you look at how uh, he's administering this. I don't want to re-traumatize them. It wasn't my intention. Um, and I think this is the, a, a large amount of backtracking because they realized how this could, how this could work, especially because, as I just said, Kutcher has a nonprofit organization that deals with this. And we're sorry if that has taken place. Are hurt. So we're sorry if they were hurt. We're not sorry for re-traumatizing. We're not sorry if we're not sorry for doing this. We're sorry if they were re-traumatized or anybody got re-traumatized by these letters. Very clear on when they say apology video, you have to actually say, I'm sorry for doing this, not sorry that you felt this way. And that's essentially what he's implying. It goes out to every single person who's ever been a victim of sexual assault, sexual abuse, or rape. Now, the delivery here is something that I can understand why people might be upset about, right? Because she's saying it, whatever, uh, making sure everything, okay, and then goes to turn off the thing. So you almost feel like she's offended that anyone would even remotely consider or think that they would do be so insensitive. But it's very important in a situation like this to take a look at yourself and be like, well, what actions did I take that caused people to feel this way about the situation? What actions did I take that caused uh, this kind of hurt and this re-traumatization of the victims? And I think one of the victims came out, I, don't want to, I hate saying victims because it implies lesser than, but one of these women, I think one of the women came out and spoke about, and not to say that they aren't victims, obviously, just saying like it seems to kind of make it as a lesser in my mind. They're not lesser. Um, the actress superior because they were able to bring, they were able to have the guts and the bravery to 
leave Scientology because it, they, their implication was that Scientology was trying to get them to renege on these claims and bury them and uh, encourage people not to testify uh, in support of their claims. Uh, and that Danny was basically using his high status in Scientology to try to shut them up. So there's a certain amount of courage it takes for these three young women to come forward and speak out, knowing they were going to be considered deemed suppressive people by Scientology. So I find this to be an interesting moment in all of this, because you see her kind of like throwing it away. And I think she means it in an offended way. Like, how could anybody ever think this? But again, you've got to have that moment where you go, okay, what can I learn from this? What, how should I have approached this differently? And this feels like a bit of brand saving on so many levels. The problem is that this apology got even more uh, uh, vilified than the letters. Because the letters, you can kind of maybe make a rationalization in your mind that, you know, they're defending their friend that they've known for years. You could say, not that it was right, but you could go in your mind, I get why they think they should have done it. But then to deliver an apology that feels very scripted, rehearsed, choreographed, dare I say costumed, dare I say makeuped, to look like a hostage apology video, I find that to be fascinating. And very much about trying to make them sympathetic rather than, a lot, rather than saying they did anything wrong. Well, now I do find it interesting that I don't, I haven't seen anyone else come out and say anything like Deborah Joe Rupp, Kurtwood Smith, Ethan Supley, in between posting pictures of himself and all the weight he's lost. I haven't seen anybody posting anything apologizing for writing the letters. It was th these two people that got the most kind of um, hate online and uh, calling out. So. It's an interesting situation. The, the body language, the tone, yeah, all of that is there that you can take a look at. Uh, yeah, Ivan, uh, do their, oh, here's Ivan. Do they are friends with the guy and he had not been found guilty yet? Uh, no, he had been found guilty, Ivan. I don't know why you have a hard time reading stuff. Like he had been found, well, even if he hadn't been found guilty, the fact that you're writing a letter before you know the evidence or you know what's happening is also a negative. That's almost even worse. Like, I didn't even hear all the evidence. Here's my feeling. About it. You would think, well, let me hear all the evidence. Let me see what the situation is. Then I'll write the letter. But they wrote the letter without even seeing the evidence or seeing what they, like for you, it's like, well, they had to wait to see if the jury found them guilty or not. Can't you make up your own mind? If you read all the evidence, if you sit in the courtroom, if you read all the transcripts, if you're going to write a letter defending somebody, you better goddamn well fucking know everything about that case before you put pen to paper or fingers to a keyboard. That's the actual truth. So you want to get pugnacious and offended, Ivan, knock yourself the fuck out. But I'm telling you that you have to analyze the situation and know what you're doing and have a full knowledge of a situation before you're going to do something like this that could put your you and your brand in jeopardy of getting vilified by a large number of people. That's the actual truth. Uh, Eric said, uh, Eric says, I, hey, John, I just want to send some love. Thank you for all that you do and for creating a space for insightful conversations. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate you watching. I appreciate all of you watching. 320 of you hanging out with me. I appreciate that very, very much. 
Hey, Dom, what's up? Good to see you, brother. Dom says, I married into a family that is good friends with the Masterson family. It's actually been hard to see people close to him cope with seeing their friend go to jail for so long. Well, fine, but I, why don't you get to know the family members of the rape victims and find out how tough it is for them to deal with the fact that they're having to watch their loved ones go through the trauma of being raped, being questioned, being pursued by the Scientology, being being hassled and harangued by God knows how many people. Like, please, uh, I'm glad you know them, Dom, but uh, to me, balance that out by getting to know or finding out how these women are dealing with the ramifications of the actions that this man has wrought upon them. And it's supposed to be difficult. It's supposed to be difficult when someone does horrific things like this. And from what... Um, uh, you know, you read in the, the, the transcripts, it's pretty hard stuff uh, to read. So I get it. But um, so it's this thing at the end of the day. It's like, I, you know, it's, it's I get it, but there's a balance here. If you're going to focus on one section of pain, open the door to the other section of pain so you balance that out. You know, So that's what I say there. Yeah, you can read up on both families. Yeah, absolutely. Have that balance. So, um. The letters that were uh, wrote asked the judge to be lenient on sentencing him. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Uh, that's for sure. Um, they, they are presented to the judge during the sentencing phase, along with the testimony of any live witnesses. And that's what I say. You have to, you have to be aware of the situation before you go to go to bat for somebody or go to the mat for somebody. Do your own research. Do your own investigations. Do your own stuff if you want to put yourself in the crosshairs, because that's. Especially if you're a famous person, that's essentially what you're doing. So, um, and what what is the people were telling? Well, there was a statement here. Yeah, there's a statement from one of the women who were in, who were um, who brought this forward. Yeah, she said, "Jane, this is from Yashir Ali." Let me bring up the um, the uh, thing here. She said uh, the tweet uh, from Yashir Ali. Who, who, if you don't follow Yashir Ali at Yashir. I recommend you do. He's got incredible amount of information on all of this. Uh, I'm only scratching the surface on all the information surrounding this. But he said, Jane Doe, number one, also known as Jen B., one of the women Danny Masterson was convicted of raping, just texted me her reaction to Ashton and Mila Kunis's video. This video was incredibly insulting and hurtful. My hope is that they learn radical accountability and the importance of self-education to learn when to keep their privilege in check, especially Ashton, who claims to work with victims of sex crimes and to Mila, and as to Mila, I can only think of Time's Up, which is a very strong statement uh, there by her, uh, for sure, in all of this. Um, I know that there was a story that came out. Um, I don't know if I have it up uh, myself personally, but I know there was a story that came out about um, the situations. Oh, yeah, here we go. This is uh, Entertainment Weekly covered this. That Mila Kunis says Danny Masterson bet Ashton Kutcher to French kiss her when she was 14. This resurfaced in a 2002 interview with Rosie O'Donnell. They were on the talk show. I, I watched the clip of this. It's online. You can watch it on Twitter as well. Um, and she is there talking uh, with um, both Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis. In the clip, Kunis reveals that Ma Danny Masterson once best at, bet Ashton Kutcher to French kiss her on the set of their Fox sitcom during a scene that required the two who played love interests, Jackie and Kelso to make it out. At the time, Kunis was 14. 
Kutcher was 19. So the person that Deborah Jo Rupp was defending as sitting down with the teens and telling them not to do drugs and to walk the straight and narrow was also on the other side, possibly betting Ashton Kutcher to French, daring him to French kiss a 14 year old girl simply because they were doing a scene together where they were making up. Kutcher said, they were like, you guys are going to be making out on the scene. And I'm thinking, wait, this is slightly illegal. So at least, so Kutcher was aware, even back in 2002, that this might have been the, uh, kind of inappropriate. Kuna said, I'd never kissed a guy. Ashton's attractive. I was a 14-year-old little girl, and I was extremely scared for my life. I was extremely scared for my life. That There is laying the groundwork for traumatization. She, he was very nice about it. He was like, don't worry about it. Then Danny goes to him and goes, dude, I'll give you $10 if you French kiss her. Kutcher confirmed it in the interview that he and Masterson Master had a little side bet going. And he said, you're kissing on the show where boyfriend and girlfriend, you would see tongue. You would use tongue. Danny bet me like 20 bucks. I wouldn't do it. So, yeah, the two argued over whether actually, actually Ashton Kutcher went through with it. Kuna stating he did not. And Kutcher stating otherwise. He said, I didn't let him, but I think he tried uh, is what Mila Kuna said. And Kutcher then said he believed uh, Kuna had turned 15 by then, because uh, that makes it better. Um, so these are the situations here. And apparently, there have been more videos coming out. One Kutcher described his underage um, cheaper by the dozen co-star Hillary Dove as, quote, one of the girls that were all waiting to turn 18. Whew. That is rough, uh, for sure. And then there was a clip of, Co of Danny Masterson on the Conan O'Brien show discussing his Long Island accent, lack thereof, in 2004, and the actor builds up to a joke about him asking people to touch his genitals. Brian says, so, so why are you asking people to do that? That's the more important question, Conan O'Brien said. And Danny Masterson said, I mean, you got him. You know what I mean? Everybody should grab. And then Conan said, and this is really interesting. Conan says, I've heard about you and you'll be caught soon. I know you will. And Danny laughed and said, I will. So these are these things that you've got to kind of factor into the whole situation. And so you say, oh, people are in pain connected to his family. This guy's had a pattern of doing things that violate women's or people's space and um, um, borders and parameters and boundaries. So... You know, I'm sorry they're in pain, but the dude has a pattern. That's kind of the situation here, unfortunately, for his family to see this happen. So, but yeah, Conan knew. Conan could sense. These are these things you see, you know, in these talk shows. So anyway, that's the situation there. I just wanted to talk about it. Look, I get people who want to defend the fact that they wrote the letters. Certainly a lot of us might be tempted to write letters to defend our friends. In certain situations but something when you're dealing with something like this which is multiple rape accusations and these are just the women who were who had the strength and the bravery and the courage to take on the entire church of scientology in accusing danny god knows if there aren't i wonder if there aren't other women in scientology who were also taken advantage of by danny uh and uh don't have the strength to come forward or don't have the or afraid to come forward. I don't want to say the strength. I want to say they're afraid to come forward um, because of the way that thing is constructed. So, 
I don't know. We'll know if more comes out. And as I'm saying this, his attorney, Sean Hawley, who also defended OJ, was part of the OJ team, is out here trying to get him an appeal because they're claiming that the judge made some incorrect decisions in allowing more testimony of what he did to these women to come through so that the jury had a bigger picture of what happened. Um, and we'll see what happens with that. So he may not do the 30 years. Who knows? And look, uh, these women, I think one of the women came forward and said that she went to the police to report him and that one of the police immediately called the Church of Scientology, which is how they knew about it. So don't ever doubt how long these tentacles are uh, with situations like this. And it's it's unsettling. Uh, Anonymous sent in a stream lab and said, uh, Mr. Roca, apologies for the late query, but what's your gut reaction to scabbing? Because you realize your national union hates you as much as your employer. I don't know what that means. Uh, what's your reaction to scabbing because you realize your national union hates you as much as your employer? Yeah, I don't know if I can make sense of that. Um, my gut reaction is I don't think scabbing is a good thing. Um, and I wouldn't, you know, I, if I was on a show like that, I don't think I, I wouldn't do it. So, yeah, weird. Um, how does your employer hate you if you're scabbing? scabbing? Uh, that's confusing to me. Anyway, um, let me hit uh, one more of these super chats that came through here from Eric's. He said, oh, you already did, Eric's. Thank you very much. I already read it. Apologies, apologies. All right, let's take a quick break uh, from this situation, and we'll move on to other stuff. Uh, i got about 20 minutes left in the show. So if you want to send in some support, some Streamlabs and Super Chats, do it now so I can answer them before I get on out of here because Lady Outlaw and I are going to grab some lunch after I'm done with this. Uh, and we'll be right back right after this. And I do want to say one final thing to wrap up the conversation with that whole situation. Of course, um, what well, I want to say, of course, my heart, my sympathies, my um, thoughts of comfort go out to the these women and their families and what they're enduring and what they're um, being re-traumatized with. And if Sean Hawley gets her way and Danny Masterson's legal team gets their way. They're going to have to testify yet again to what he did to them. They've already done it three times, by the way, over the two, over the, over the situations, over the process, the two trials and uh, making the initial accusations. Um, and now they'll have to do it again. Right. And that's something that you don't want to wish on anyone because anyone who has ever had themselves violated like that, will tell you that reliving it, even if it's for seeking justice, is one of the most difficult things to experience personally. Because you have to viscerally re-experience it all over again, physically. And that is a horrible, and emotionally, mentally, it's a horrible thing to put people through. Um, for sure. So just want to say that as a, a final wrap-up to that. Um, uh, let's move on to another conversation here. Uh, that's the Jimmy Fallon thing. I'll, I'll just kind of power through this. I don't know if you guys know this with Jimmy Fallon. Uh, Rolling Stone wrote a pretty scathing article um, here. It's written by uh, Christy Lee Yandoli. Uh, they interviewed quite a number of former staffers, 16 current and former staffers on Tonight Show, talking about Jimmy Fallon's erratic behavior uh, and um, some of the lines that he crossed in dealing with things. They implied that he has trouble with alcohol, even though he's denied this since day one, and I certainly am not going to make any accusations because I have no personal knowledge 
of whether he has any trouble with that kind of stuff. But certainly the conversations throughout here, some some anonymous, some not anonymous, talking about the situation uh, and that he's good in bad days, that he could be awful to people um, uh, and he could absolutely have outbursts and that his behavior was inconsistent. And a lot of these staffers said in this in this uh, piece, which is which is up on Rolling Stone. I think you can if you haven't clicked on Rolling Stone, you get one article. You can read it. It's pretty extensive. Talked about how they went to HR with these complaints and HR fired a, a number of people who came to that. That's what they're that's what they're claiming, that HR would fire people who came to complain about the things they were experiencing. Let me tell you about HR. They're not always on your side of the employee. I've dealt with HR. HR sometimes, a lot of times, from the stories I've heard from people, the stuff I've experienced, they will absolutely default to defend the company um, over you as the employee. Because guess who's paying their paycheck? The company. So they're going to try their damnedest to try to defend the company, cover the company, if their paycheck depends on it. And so it's not always the smartest thing to go HR, and that's the unfortunate truth. Just like it's not always the smartest thing to go to the police, even though you should, when you've been um, attacked or assaulted or sexually violated, because sometimes they don't believe you and they want to find the reasons to not believe. So you see in this situation, a number of them came forward and they talked about it. Seven former employees say their mental health was impacted by their alleged experiences. These staffers said it was commonplace to hear people joking about wanting to kill themselves and that they would refer to guests, dressing rooms in the office as crying rooms because that's where they would go to let out their emotions. Now, some of you, and certainly my brother, the hot mic, Jeff Snyder, has been like, oh, these soft people and blah, blah, blah. It's horseshit. I've been on terrible productions with abusive people in power, and it is such a terrible experience because that energy, and especially if you're somewhat of an empath, that energy consumes the set. It consumes the set. Now, again, I don't have any personal experience with Jimmy Fallon. I don't think I ever saw a show in, in person. I'm not a big fan of going to live tapings of show. Um, but certainly from these reports, quite a number of people felt that they had real hard time dealing with him and his mood swings and his upsetness. And the, the reason it's a big deal is because he radiates, just like Ellen, just like Drew Barrymore, radiates this Oh, he's just a sweet guy, a cool guy. He's a fun guy. Look, he's doing singing imitations. Look, he's tousling uh, Trump's hair. Look, he's uh, giggling and laughing and falling all over himself. And Nicole Kidman and him could have dated. There's all of that, right? Which is fun and cute and great for late night. It totally works. But if behind the scenes you're a terror to deal with, that has to be exposed. That has to be brought out into the light. So that people who watch the show can make up their own minds of whether they want to keep patronizing your show and supporting your show, knowing some of your actions and your behavior. I mean, that whole expose on Ellen eventually ran her off that show. Thank God. Because I'd have old personal experience from a couple of friends who worked on that show and told me horrible stories of what she was like to people and their head or what the, her producers and head writers were like, uh, which was not great. So, you know, you, you get that, and it's exposed here. Um, it detailed an ugly environment with unexpected, inconsistent behavior, outbursts, staffers losing faith 
that the show's nine different showrunners in nine years could change anything. I mean, it's amazing that the show is successful in any way, shape, or form when they have revolving showrunners at the same pace that the Cleveland Browns have head coaches. It's And that's a shitty team, even though they won yesterday. It's a shitty team. Shitty track record, shitty situation. It's like having a great team that constantly changes coaches every year but delivers a good product for the most part every year. So just it's incredible that they were able to – and that's a testimony to the um, uh, staff and the production team that were ironically getting abused by a lot of the actions of these showrunners, according to the report, and Fallon. They quote that there was they, – they say that there was widespread fear at work uh, and that their mental health was affected, as I said earlier – NBC issued a statement uh, acknowledging employee issues being investigated. They said, we are incredibly proud of tonight's show and providing a respectful work environment's top priority. As in any workplace, we've had employees raise issues and there have been investigations uh, and actions been taken where appropriate. And the current showrunner who Fallon said, because Fallon did a whole virtual meeting and apologized to everybody on the call for what went down. And by the way, he's part of that podcast where all the late night show guys are getting together and doing a podcast. I wonder if they're going to bring this up and give Jimmy all kinds of shit. Um, Fallon, Fallon said in the virtual meeting that the current showrunner is going nowhere and told staffers in an email following the articles publishing that he doesn't believe the reporting is reflective of the show's true environment. But the statement said, well, I know the reporter reached out to many of you before the piece ran. I don't believe what is written is reflected. And this is the showrunner, not Jimmy. While I know the reporter reached out to many of you before the piece ran, I don't believe what's written is reflective of the overall culture of our extraordinary team that I'm so lucky and proud to work with every day. The place described in the article is not the place I know. Still, it's disappointing to see something published that does not capture the positive and inclusive environment I believe we have created together. Okay, so there's this statement is phenomenal to dissect, right? Because, first of all, this is a showrunner taking no response. Now, I get it. Maybe some of these actions didn't happen on his watch because, as we said, there have been nine showrunners. But still, I find it fascinating, uh, the wording of this statement. While I know the reporter reached out to many of you before the piece ran, I don't believe what is written is reflective of the overall culture of our extraordinary team. So in one breath, he is kissing the ass of the team to soften them up by calling them extraordinary. Then he's denigrating the article and giving it no validity by saying, I don't believe that it's reflective of the overall culture. Rather than accepting a lot of these people's thoughts and feelings and experiences, he is denigrating them, devaluing them. Um, there's another term I'm looking for right now that I can't remember, but he is uh, belittling their, their feelings about um, their situations by saying he doesn't believe it. And he says, I'm so lucky and proud to work with every day which is showrunner ass-kissing doublespeak, and they all do it. None of them believe it. They all say that shit, but the truth is, at the end of the day, they are very cocky about themselves, and they think these people work in service of them and their vision. And then he says, the place described in the article is not the place I know. Again, reiterating the fact that, hey, it's almost similar to Kutcher, right, and Mila Kunis and all those people wrote the letters. That person who raped three women, that's not the Danny Masters and I know. That's not, you know, it's essentially the same. It's, it's the cousin of that comment. It really is. It said the place described in the article is not the place I know. Still, it's disappointing. Not, it's, it's terrible. It's frustrating. It's horrific. It's not cool. It's disappointing. Oh, to see something published that does not capture the positive 
and inclusive environment I believe we have created together. And I think they went on to say, but if you have any concerns, certainly you can bring them to HR. So basically, he is laying the groundwork that I love you all. I love this show. I love doing this show. You guys are awesome. Yeah, it sucks that there was that, but that's not us. We're better than that. We're great. And if you have any problems, go to HR. And if you go to HR, guess who's going to get fired? And if you were thinking of going to HR, how many people have the guts to go, oh, you know what? I'm going to harsh my showrunners mellow by going to HR and essentially risking getting yelled at or risk getting fired or risk uh, ramifications from that showrunner because he's so positive about the show. So in a way, it's kind of a, a bullying in us. It's a bullying with a velvet glove. Like the show is so great. The show is that that article doesn't represent us. We're amazing. But, you know, if you need to go talk to HR, go ahead. Just know that this show is amazing. Just know that this show is great. Just know that I love you. But if you need to go, I get it. Just know. So it's a way of intimidating with a softer hand. Uh, people who are maybe on the fence or don't want to, because I mean, how many 19, 20 year olds, 22 year olds, 23 year olds, 25 fuck, 30 year olds are willing to risk losing their job to go and complain about the head guy? It's not a lot of people. This is not a lot of people. That's why Rolling Stone had to go anonymous with these 16 people for the most part, because they knew what was, they knew that these people would get blowback, would get vilified in the industry. No one would hire them on a production because they'd be like, these people are going to talk about us. So they know all that. And so it's a dangerous situation uh, for them. So in a way, it's kind of a reverse bullying uh, by stroking your hair and telling you not to do it. So, um, All right. So we'll see what happens with that. Uh, there you go. Yeah. If a sh When the showrunner is saying, I don't believe the experience of, of these 16 people, how would a current staffer believe it would be any different if they go to HR? That's 100% the truth. That's 100% the truth. Yes. Um, and that's what I'm getting at. Uh, JMB says, whoa, I just got some John Louise wrote up with Harsh in the Mellow, some real 90s. JMB, sometimes your comments, man. I don't understand. Um, all right. So anyway, let's move on. Because I got nine minutes left. I want to talk about this. Actually, give me a second. Let's take a quick break. Because I got to grab something uh, to keep the computer from running out of power. Uh, and I'll be right back in like 20 seconds uh, right after this. All right, we'll see how long uh, we'll be able to go on with that power source. We'll see how long. We shall see. Um, all right, so, oh, Polly Shore reference. Oh, I don't watch Polly Shore stuff. Uh, all right, that's 24 seconds. So I apologize, 006. I apologize. All right, so let's, finish, let's wrap up by having this conversation about um, um, Martin Shorts. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw this, but there was an article by Dan Coyce. Uh, in Slate, and he essentially wrote 
that he's not a big fan of Martin Short. Uh, and he says, um, he says, the short has been synonymous with a kind of eager to please flamboyance since his days at Toronto Second City, where he would do anything, anything for a laugh. Um, and uh, he says that he finds Martin Short's um, over-the-top characters that Martin, Martin Short has played in his long career, quote, unbelievably annoying. Now, a lot of people jumped on this and came to his defense um, you know, all these people were, uh, all these fans came to his defense. All these people brought up these wonderful things that he was a part of. Ben Stiller came out and said, Martin Short's a comedic genius. End of story. Mark Hamill said, hard to believe people are actually debating whether or not Mark Short is funny. Newsflash, he's hilarious. Michael McKean, who of course has been a number of those Christopher Guest uh, films and also in Laverne and Shirley. And of course a good actor in his own right. And a number of other things says, guy really blew the lid off the whole Martin Short story, didn't he? Um, and Jay Smith Cameron uh, said that the infamous Martin Short article, of course, is from Succession, Jay Smith Cameron. She says the infamous Martin Short article is filled with clips of references to characters that the writer finds annoying somehow, but are so entertaining that the article is a valentine in spite of itself. And John Cusack said, I don't know what people are on about Martin Short, but his Mr. Rogers boxing match is my favorite. So um, this is so fascinating to me because I read the article and I don't know if these people read the article because the article, yes, Dan Coyce is clear that he's not a fan of Martin Short and he's not a fan of the overtop character. And guess what? Martin Short is a certain kind of comedian and you either like him or you don't. And he says this in the article that even Martin Short acknowledges that some people don't like him and his comedy. Uh, and he says, um, that the people don't like him, uh, you're never going to win those people over. And this is what he said in an oral history of uh, 1994's Clifford, which I, is a horrific film. I, don't, I know people like it. It's not my jam. But he says the one thing he knows about people who hate him, he had laughing, is that if I had dinner with them, I'd be bored. That's the only thing I can say back to those bastards. And here's the deal. I think this article is pretty balanced, or column, I guess I would say, not article, it's pretty balanced in delivering the reasons why Dan Coyce doesn't find Martin Short funny, but also giving validity to a lot of the journey Martin Short has gone on. The article talks about his beginnings, losing his, um, I think losing his brother or sister, then losing his parents at a young age in his 20s. And he gives a great synopsis of Martin Short's career and also offering his opinion on the things that he liked and didn't like all the way up to only murders in the building. And I got to be honest with you, I don't always like Martin Short, and that shouldn't be a fucking crime. And watching these people go crazy about it is fascinating to me because, in essence, you're saying this person's not allowed to have their opinion, and if they have their opinion, I'm going to shout them down from my celebrity rooftops, and I'm going to twist the article without having read it into some kind of massive takedown of Martin Short. But I think nothing could be further from the truth when you read the article. It's a much more balanced article than people are giving it credit for. He, like I said, he talks about the situation, talks about only murders in the building, um, talks about how they that Hollywood has constantly been trying to find a way to break Mar uh, Martin Short through and make him a star, and that um, he went through a career crisis in the early 2000s where he wasn't sure 
he could still do it anymore. And he kept coming back and reinvented himself as a talk show guest and popped up in, in numerous shows that are interesting and challenging for you to consider Martin Short for until he wound up with only murders in the building. And I think what you take away from the article is Dan may not be a big fan of Martin Short, but in a way he kind of respects the fact that this guy is a survivor of the business and that the public, and I think he kind of implicitly in, uh, implies this, is that the public uh, is the one who keeps bringing Martin Short back. And it isn't just Martin Short's humor that dies, that the public is enough people who do have a taste for Martin Short. And he even says that Martin Short, from all accounts, is a very nice guy. He's a very, uh, he loves his wife. He gives Martin Short credit for the, the chapters in his memoir that he spends talking about how much he loves his wife. He doesn't denigrate that or vilify that or say it's a, or say cynically that it was some kind of way of ingratiating himself with, himself with the audience. He gives credit where credit is due. So I was just really surprised to see people losing their shit over him saying that he doesn't find Martin Short funny or he finds him annoying. There are plenty of comedians that other people find annoying. I'm sure there are people out there who find Eddie Murphy annoying. I'm sure there are people who find Dave Chappelle annoying. I'm sure there are people who find uh, Bill Burr annoying. I know there are people who find Bill Burr annoying or Seinfeld annoying. Or, you know, there are just people who find, look, people love Friends. That show is annoying as fuck to me. Have you ever watched that show without the laugh track? It's a whole other show without the laugh track, let me just tell you. And so to me, there's those things. You, you have a right to your opinion. I mean, of course, these people have a right to, you know, call out the article, but call out the article in a balanced way because the article was balanced. It wasn't like 20 paragraphs of him denigrating Martin Short through the whole article. It's a much more balanced. He gives credit to him being an SNL and that he left because the pressure was too much. He names all the characters that he created at SNL, gives them space, links to those um, uh, sketches, links to samples of those characters. Again, giving credit where credit is due in this situation. So it goes extensively talking for two paragraphs about the birth of Ed Grimley on SNL and all of that. And then talks about how his movies, he appeared in not that bad movies that did poorly at the box office like Inner Space and Morris Dex. I don't like Mars Attacks. I love Inner Space. He did movie and not that good movies that made some money, like Three Amigos and Three Fugitives. Never saw Three Fugitives. I'm not the biggest Three Amigos fan. I know other people love it. Um, and then his father of the Bride series, and he does go after him for that character because I that character's <clears throat> sorry that character is an interesting character in 2023 for a number of reasons, uh, right? I mean, is this a straight guy playing a stereotypical gay character in a way that's reinforcing gay stereotypes? He's got an accent that's not a phantom European accent. So, and it is a comedy, but you could absolutely look at that prism, look at his character rather through a prism that maybe wouldn't fit in 2023. Spends a lot of time talking about Clifford, talks about Martin Short's sitcom uh, and that his uh, late night show that he tried to do in 99, 2000 when it wasn't that great. Um, and even gives him credit for talking about how he sees himself uh, as, a, as a comedian and where his approach to it is and how his approach to it is in terms of comedy. Um, he does say the public hasn't exactly been crying out for more Martin Short material since those dark days of the early 2000s. But as he's moved his focus away from the traditional signifiers of showbiz success for a 20th century comedian, the sitcom high concept comedy movie, The Talk Show, he's found more profitable vehicles for his somewhat old 
fashion showmanship, doing the voiceover work. Uh, he talks about how great he was on the two-day cameo he did as a stone dentist in Inherent Vice, the Paul Thomas Anderson uh, situation here. He talks about his work in Damages, his work in The Morning Show recently uh, as a director slash predator. Uh, he talks about the Tony that he won recently in Neil Simon's musical revival of Little Me and talks about him being a fantastic guest host. And apparently he spends like an incredible amount of time getting ready for his appearances on uh, talk shows so he can seem like he's off the cuff. But it says here Short has spent hours preparing for such appearances, sending as much as 18 pages of ideas and jokes so he can perform the impersonation. And for me personally, my greatest Martin Short is Jiminy Glick. Nothing, and I mean nothing Martin Short has done comedy-wise comes close to Jiminy Glick. What Gervais was doing on the Golden Globes, Jiminy Glick was already doing in these sit-downs. With Between Two Ferns, Zach Galifianakis was doing, Jiminy Glick was already doing. Don't watch the movie. The movie's not great. The, the, you can watch all the scene, the vignettes that he did before he did the movie with people like Seinfeld, Larry David, um, a number of great stars that he is taking the piss out of. And it is incredible and funny as shit to watch. And apparently he does this when he goes around to different cities. If he does a show, he'll do Jiminy Glick interviewing a local luminary of the town which is fun. That's a smart decision. And it's mentioned here in the article. And then I think only murders in the building for me personally, I think this is the best work Martin short has ever done. I myself have not always been the biggest fan. I do have found him at times irritating a bit over the top. It doesn't mean he's not funny objectively. Clearly a lot of people find him funny. So I'm not trying to denigrate Martin short. Go get your bag. You're a successful comedian. I wish I could be as successful as you doing anything. I do. So much love to you. But I haven't always been the biggest fan. But I've always liked him as a person, liked him. So I've always, like, you know, enjoyed seeing him when he does stuff that has a little more humanity to it. And seeing him in – and I liked his Ed Grimley. I will say this. I must say. I liked his Ed Grimley. I used to imitate him sometimes around the house to irritate my parents when I was younger. So I liked his Ed Grimley. But, and, but when he got to Only Murders in the Building, it is a much more restrained performance and the guy that you that people talk about that they love and enjoy the real human being that you see in those uh, uh, guest spots in the talk shows that's who comes through, and so you it's a much more layered, multi-dimensional character than he's ever played in anything in my opinion. Um, and Steve Martin and Selena are are obviously good on the show, but Martin Short is the standout of the show, and I think Collider did a uh, uh, said the same thing in one of their articles. That I was caught as I was perusing research for the show today, and I 100% agree. Like he is the best part of um, of Only Murders in the Building. This season has been fantastic because of his relationship, not only with Paul Rudd initially, but also with Meryl Streep as the show has gone on. It's been wonderful to watch. So just incredible stuff. So my reason I'm bringing up this subject today is because. People need to read this shit before they comment on it. And they need to really kind of be okay with having their sacred cows um, not sacrificed, but maybe attacked or maybe taken down a peg or two by someone who doesn't like their stuff. And guess what? That's okay. That's okay. People are like, boycott Dan Coyce. Don't fire him. Don't let... What the fuck kind of stupid shit is that? Like, Are you so sensitive that you can't have somebody like give a different opinion about something you like. This is what drives me nuts about the movie sphere too. People are like, 
you like that movie? Well, fuck your opinion about everything and fuck your knowledge. And it's like, grow up. Grow up, you children. Like, it's okay to not like a movie and like a movie. I don't tell you people not to watch Rudy or the Lord of the Rings movies. Fucking own all of them. Buy the biggest box set you want. Love what you love, but be also okay with other people not loving what you love. And don't take it personally. Don't take it. There are plenty of people who bash Citizen Kane now trying to be cool um, uh, about that movie. And you know what? I don't give a fuck because I still love that movie. There are plenty of people who go after The Godfather. I mean, it's not an accident that Greta Gerwig put that in the patriarchy section of Barbie to kind of denigrate Godfather and the dudes who love Godfather. But I didn't take it personally because I was like, fuck you, I love it. And no one's going to tell me different. Now, I've ever sat down and tried to explain the movie. No, I've never done that. But certainly, I love the movie and I love The Godfather and it appeals to a lot of men. So that's how it is. So that's the thing that I think we have to get past. So all these people coming out trying to destroy Dan Coyce or trying to get him fired or trying to, like, come on, y'all. Like, let's calm down. The thing that makes us great in this country is the ability to debate subject, debate topics, have healthy conversations about this stuff, and then come out the other side with maybe a better understanding of the other side and an acceptance that other people have different opinion than you, and it doesn't have to affect your love of something. It doesn't, unless they're right. And I think... That's what angers people the most is that they have a real at the right at the bottom, an undercurrent of, of wondering whether they should like the movie or whether they do like the movie as much as they do. And so when people expose them, they're afraid to have something negative exposed about the movie because then they might have to change their opinion on it. They might be wrong. And people hate being proven wrong. God damn. There's a whole yeah, there's a whole side of the political spectrum, but whatever. And so you, you you get that in this. And so to me, I'm just like, come on, guys, let's all just get along and relax. And it's okay to have different opinions on this. <laughs> Dumb. Unless they're on TikTok, right? Then we hate their thoughts. Uh, I don't know, sometimes yes, sometimes no. I, I am a very, uh, the lady out will tell you, I am a mad addict to TikTok. And I'm, I've, only allowed one or two hours, not on the same day, uh, to be on TikTok. I'm only allowed one hour every few days because when I first discovered TikTok uh, a year or two ago, um, and I know I posted stuff on there, like in the showdown stuff, just for fun, but I'd never actually been on it. When I actually went on it and started like scrolling, I pissed away three hours one morning. Uh, on a Saturday or a Sunday, was and I just was going. I don't think she was in town. And the next thing you know, it was like noon, and I was like, "What the fuck just happened?" And that's when I realized, like, I can't do that because that happened to me when I was younger with Tetris. I would sometimes call in sick to my retail job so I could stay and play Tetris longer. Back in my twenties, so that's the, the, the crazy shit that I used to do when I get addicted to something. So I have to be very aware that, like, like. Got to cut with the cutoff, so I get an hour every few days uh, to enjoy TikTok, which is why I don't do a lot of TikTok videos because um, I feel like I have to be on it if I'm going to do it. And those people are incredibly creative on TikTok. I am super envious of the amount of talent and creativity that's on TikTok. People's editing abilities, people's ability to use like old clips from random shows to connect to stuff that's happening today. It's amazing the kind of knowledge and creativity people have on TikTok. And I, 
I do nothing but bow in out of respect for the people who are doing the right kind of content and uh, uh, um, interesting kind of content that they do on TikTok for sure. Uh, Jay West is a playing Tetris right now. I'm, he's not lying. It's addictive. It is. Oh, Starfield? No, yeah. Starfield, first of all, it's an open world game. I, I don't want to I, I can't, and I don't have a PC and I don't have an Xbox, so I can't play it. I have a PS5. I have to wait if it ever comes out on PS5, but I do want to try it. I do want to try it. Um, all right. Uh, anyway, all right. So let me, let me get out of here. Thank you so much. It's over two hours. I did not expect to be over two hours. I apologize, gang. Thank you so much for the stream labs and the super chats. Fantastic says, hey, outlaw. I understand why people protect their brand and know where the line is when they cross it. I shake my head when they act surprised when they get called out on it. Excited for the Aquaman 2 reaction and more Geek Bites. Yes, just a quick promotional thing. Thank you, Fred, for saying that. I will be doing a reaction to the Aquaman trailer. Apparently, they previewed 30 seconds of it yesterday. Uh, again, it comes out over the weekend. What does that tell you? Uh, and uh, it'll be on Thursday, I guess. They're going to drop the full trailer. So uh, plan on seeing me re react to that. We do have uh, our Ahsoka review. We were going to be doing – I'm probably going to do a immediate reaction review like I did last week, which I thought was a lot of fun. A lot of people watched, which means a lot to me. So, um, and then we'll do the review the next morning with the Geek Buddies. Look for that. We do have a current episode out right now called The Geek Bites. It's our debut episode of a new show that we're doing. That's a spinoff of the Geek Buddies. The three of us get together and talk about one topic to give you more knowledge about the topic. It's kind of an explainer video, uh, and uh, we do it on the world between worlds. So that is, <coughs> sorry, that is out now for you all to watch. If you want to watch it on the channel. It's got about 3,000 views, which is fine for the channel. I was hoping to get a little bit more uh, for people, but uh, you know, maybe it's a thumbnail situation. Maybe people don't know us that well in the Star Wars community, but I thought Michael did an excellent job leading us into the path of the world between worlds and explaining it, and then Shannon and I chiming in the, in the back half of the video about all the stuff that Michael brought up in the first half of the video. So if you haven't watched it, it is up for the channel uh, on the channel now. Uh, I'm going to see Stop Making Sense tonight, the 4K version, the uh, new version that's going to be out in theaters on IMAX. I'm going to see it tonight. So I'm looking forward to that. I've got a haunting in Venice tomorrow. So I'll be doing a reaction video or out of theater reaction to that. Apparently it's getting great reviews. So I am very much looking forward because I didn't think it looked that great. But hearing everybody talking about it, I'm excited to see it now more than anything else. And of course, the hot mic, which will this week, I'm announcing it now. I'll put it on your schedule. The hot mic will be at noon this week, 12 p.m. PT this week, because uh, Jeff is coming back from Toronto, wants to hit it so that it doesn't later. We'll probably be asleep later in the day comes back the night before so he wants to hit it early and knock it out so 12 p.m pt that is what's going on for those of you who don't know about the cinephiles that is my podcast that i do with steve morris we just finished doing night of the hunter and we're about to walk into a certain leonardo dicaprio three-hour martin scorsese Sazy directed movie as our next film and i'm looking forward to recording the first part tomorrow but if you haven't if you love night of the hunter we just did a two-part uh breakdown of that film on the cinephiles and please support the cinephiles i mean we average 250,000 200 to 250,000 downloads a month. That is the show that I'm very, very proud of that Steve and I do. And if you haven't listened to it, we do deep dives on great films. I mean, deep dives on great films. And if you want to hear John Roca being a full on movie critic with the time and space that a podcast allows me to do that, and Steve as well, then The Cinephiles is where you need to go for all the great movies we talk about. And there's a 10 year window. So, like, nothing within the last 10 years gets talked about. By us, it's everything 10 years and before. So uh, that's there for you all to enjoy. Don't forget about the Geek Buddies and the Hot Mike separate podcast feeds as well. And the Outlaw Nation podcast network feed, which is its own feed as well. Uh, all right. Thank you all so much for hanging out with me. I appreciate it madly. Please make sure you hit a like on this video. Share it on your social media. 
hit a like on this video and subscribe to the channel down below. We're trying to get to that 50,000 subscribers by the end of the year. Help us do that. Really appreciate it. If you're watching later, leave a comment on everything. Keep it respectful. I'll, I'll delete your comment or I'll hide you from the channel if it's a, a disrespectful comment. Keep it fair. Keep it respectful. And I let the comment live. A healthy debate is always good. But if you're a dick, you're out. That's how it works on the Outlaw Nation channel. I don't give a fuck how much the algorithm helps me to have a shit ton of comments. If your comments are asshole comments, you're out. I don't give a fuck. I don't need it. Um, all right. And then at me, follow me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. I don't know if game time is coming back. I'm going to make a decision after the Jets-Bills games tonight. game tonight. If I'm going to come back tomorrow and just do it solo, I don't have Winston. I couldn't afford to pay Winston. I respect Winston. I got to pay him. He's a great host, so I couldn't afford to pay him. Maybe if we are successful with the show solo and some money comes in, then the possibility exists. But at this point, if I do it, it'll just be me hanging out with you all tomorrow at 1 or 2 p.m. Uh, doing the show, talking about all the games from the NFL this past weekend and preparing for the games coming up here this weekend. All right, y'all take care of yourselves. Be well. Thanks so much for uh, watching this um, and uh, for listening to it. If you listen to it later on the podcast network, you guys are awesome. Thanks for the healthy and fun and lively chat uh, and for indulging me for this two-hour show. You all are amazing. Uh, and I'll talk to you next time with, oh, no, and I'll say this because I'm going to start doing this. What I said way back when, when I was hosting that show that I used to host, whatever you need to do, to get through the next second, next minute, next hour, next day, next week, next month, next year, please make sure you do that. You never know what's waiting for you on the other side. I am certainly an example of that. My whole world is an example of that. You never know what can be waiting for you. And remember what I said in Orlando? It may be like you cannot, it may feel like you can't get up again. You don't have the breath to get up again. But if you find a way to get up and just keep moving forward, you never know what can happen. So for any of you who are struggling out there right now, any of you who are tough and it's having tough days, and look, I have tough days too, y'all. Don't let the fucking life I live fool you. I got some tough days that I deal with sometimes too. You just got to keep moving forward, put one step in front of the other. Be kind to yourself, forgive yourself, believe in yourself, and know that there's a positive energy in the world you can tap into if you want to tap into it and that you're worth it. Forgive yourself. I think that's the number one thing, man. It's the hardest thing to do that we all go through if we're self-reflective anyway, is being able to forgive yourself. And especially if the person you feel you wronged has already forgiven you, forgive yourself. Let it go. Treat yourself like you would treat your best friend. How would you treat your best friend? That's how you need to treat yourself. Find a way to do that. So just throwing that out there for you all. All right, I love you madly. Thanks so much for hanging out today. I'll talk to you next time with another brand new episode of The Nation here on the Outlaw Nation channel. Peace. Mm -hmm.